Welcome to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting at the east side of the Matrix as part of the Now Playing Network. Here over at the Director's Club, we take the films of a single director, and over the course of an episode, we, uh, we give them an examination out from their breakout films to their career touchstones, their uh, personal labors of love, and hidden gems in their filmography. You can never tell what like themes and connections you can find to other films that will come up when you take a look at a director's whole body of work. So come on, join us on the uh, film journey, which this time comes to a very intellectual um, director, uh, Albert Einstein. I'm Al. I'm Brad. And um, we yes, we have a very, very special guest, the um, uh, masters of ceremonies of the, um, uh, the particular architect of the Now Playing Network, uh, the, um, uh, the co-host of his own Popcorn Supper, and a and a um, uh, music star in his own right. Uh, welcome, uh, Jim. The director's club has heart. Director's club has heart. What do you think of my jingle? We'll use it. Okay. Good. <laughs> so, good. so Jim, does the director's club seem smaller to you now that you're uh, coming back uh, oh. later on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's. I would say that. Uh, I mean, I've I've mentioned this before on other shows. It can be very intimidating sometimes. To cover the entire filmography of someone like Fellini, which will be coming up, and Fassbender, and a lot of other directors in the past, to where it, it wasn't that I felt intimidated, but I was definitely um, exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> so, like to do Popcorn Supper, where it's literally just me and Patrick talking for an hour randomly. I mean, sometimes we do come up with like a topic ahead of time, or a listener will send in an email, but for the most part, we just talk about whatever we watched this past week, and it's no pressure. And I kind of like that approach, but I do miss binging sometimes on a director, and that's kind of why I'm back you know, a couple times this year, and well, it's quite the honor. As kind of a compromise, uh, we have a director uh, for this episode with a pretty uh, short uh, filmography of uh, seven films. And I just want to inquire as to what brings you towards uh, wanting to talk on Albert Brooks. Well, he happens to be my favorite comedy director, I believe. I mean, uh, I would say that David Wayne is also up there because he's responsible for my favorite comedy of all time, which is Wet Hot American Summer. And it's quite a beautiful parody slash love letter to summer camp films of the 80s that I grew up with and loving. And then, I don't know, I think I, I just I have this vivid memory of... You know, the, especially the first three or four Albert Brooks movies, anytime they were on, they were remote droppers. Like, my dad and I would stop what we're doing and watch them together and laugh, just like we watched them the, for the first time. And Defending Your Life in particular was just like these re- one of those rewatchable, quotable movies that sort of uh, stayed with me and kind of feels like my ideal version of the afterlife. Like... I know people like Woody Allen and Larry David and you know other sort of atheistic viewpoints will just say, nothing. There's nothing afterwards. Nothing at all. But part of me is like, it would be so cool to go and watch my life on a movie screen and talk about it. <laughs> Much like up on a podcast. Yeah, the the, Eter- the eternal podcast, perhaps. Yeah, that would be um, great. And and, and it's, it's cool you brought up um, like Larry David and, um, and Woody Allen because... To me, it's the interesting thing about uh, Albert Brooks is how he kind of fits 
in a weird, in a kind of firmament of this like constellation of like um, uh, neurotic comedians, <laughs> like a, a a sort of three Weisenheimers, if you will. <laughs> like, yeah. Like like it seems to me that like, and it's really interesting how Brooks and Woody Allen and Larry David they all deal with like these neurotic subjects. But they're, um, but they all deal with it in different ways, and their particular kind of grievances and uh, and self criticisms are all really distinct from each other. Very self deprecating. Right, and one thing they have in common is uh, Jewish humor is central to mm-hmm. to all of their styles, but their location, uh, at least in, in comparing uh, Brooks and Allen, I think makes all the difference because. Alan's coming from such a direct New York Jewish uh, point of view, and Brooks takes takes that, but but gives it a more L.A. Hollywood showbiz vibe to it. Does um in your guys' recollection, does Woody Allen ever have a a treatsy on L.A. after his uh, cocaine incident in the movie Annie Hall? <laughs> Not that I can think of. I think he's opposed to LA just in general. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I would, I would imagine so. Maybe, maybe you're kind of alluding to the possibility of there's a, a West Coast versus East Coast battle, like with rappers back in the day. There is a little bit of that. A, a little, and uh, that I think Brooks, mo- Albert Brooks, moves a little further into the LA environment. The way his attitude w- towards it might be the same as Woody's, but he either has chosen to deal with it. More, or it's been imposed upon him more to deal with LA types. Yeah, um, and um, and there's also a a level of re- reflexivity with him directing films that like mm. um, uh, that uh, is an interesting comparison. How Woody, how Woody oh, does yeah. it, the you know, night and day there. <laughs> yeah, like Woody has um, Woody has um, Stardust Memories, obviously, but has it manifested itself in his other in in other like um, his other films? as much as Brooks has in his limited filmography? You could also argue that he always does that because... He's always Woody uh, Allen. Right, right. Uh, you know, different in varying degrees of uh, styles and, and lovability or lack thereof of his character. Yeah. But he's always, at least in the movie, so much that it's not just the movies he's in, but when he's not in the movies, is a Woody surrogate. Yeah, like let mm-hmm. me run, let me run a crazy uh, theory by you guys about that. Um, like because Woody, it seems to me that like Woody's Woody's like concern self concerns are kind of more about him being being Woody Allen, you know, just being a per, a person, a human being. Whereas whereas as when we'll take a look at that during uh, the Albert Brooks's filmography, but Brooks is kind of more div- self critical on doing. What does it mean to record, uh, to re- make a movie, edit a movie, uh, go yeah. out and like, um, uh, in uh, and uh, buy things, go out on, you know, go uh, go out on dates, just the mechanic, just driving around LA, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> makes a prominent place. Very in introspective, I think about mm-hmm. about human nature and himself, especially in modern romance. Uh, another interesting movie that would probably fall into this. Uh, umbrella that we're discussing is uh, Steve Martin's L.A. story, where right. I felt like that was kind of a, a direct reflection of the way uh, Martin kind of romanticizes Los Angeles, and he you know he pr- he portrays a relationship 
that actually happened in his real life that the woman that he co-stars in LA story with um, eventually became his wife or was his wife at the time oh. um, but Woody Allen clearly loves New York I don't know if Albert Brooks loves Los Angeles um, you know at one point like Rip Torn in Defending Your Life says oh there is no hell but I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close <laughs> so I mean it's, it's, it's possible but I, I do think that um, I do think that Albert really does go inward a lot in, in a way that I, I mean I don't want to say that it's more accessible than Woody Allen because Woody Allen has a huge fan base and he makes a movie a year but there's something about Albert Brooks that I think is a little bit more warm and inviting whereas like Woody Allen is an acquired taste like I know people who can't stand his persona mm-hmm. yeah. but I'm really glad you brought up uh, Steve Martin because I do think uh, there is a, an Albert Brooks, Steve Martin connection, mm. which is that they both seem to be satirizing the idea of comedy. And sure, Martin, sure. especially in his stand-up, uh, does the impossible, which is which is complete parody of comedy, a complete uh, deconstruction, deconstruction of the yeah. stand-up comedian. And Albert Brooks seems to be doing that with a deconstruction of the Hollywood director, the Hollywood type, Hollywood screenwriter. There's this sense that, uh, and I yes. think that's why he's so free to uh, portray himself uh, as so unlikable, is because he's very much commenting on this Hollywood culture around him very negatively. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah, that's, that is a super cool point. In that, like, he, it seems that Brooks, yeah, engages more on parroting, looking at, looking at a particular situation and, and not just noting the absurdity about it, but, but pushing it to go, pushing it to extremes to kind of show what is absurd about that. I think Larry David would do that the most. Like his, his version of reality is so absurd and so exaggerated Mm -hmm. and the coincidences that show up on Curb Your Enthusiasm and just the people that he runs into, those interactions are just so wildly absurd Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the point where you really do have to almost watch them and realize, okay, this is as far as removed from reality as you possibly can get and laugh at that (laughs) fact alone. It's like, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm, but again, I can't, I don't know if I could binge on an entire season all at once because Larry David's persona, again, can be a little grating at times. mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, he's he's an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you could use Seinfeld as a buffer. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. It is, um, I, I mean, I look at like Brooks, and he engages to me in a fascinating middle ground between Larry yeah. David and and Woody Allen in like one particular way. Like, like Wood, Allen can be annoying because he so often makes it all about himself, and it's all about well, what do I think? What's what? Uh, why am I freaking out about this stuff? But but Larry David to me is like the opposite. It's like. I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. Yeah. I'm just a guy, ordinary guy living my life. And what's with all these weirdos and, and people with, with their, all their grievances are, are making life a, a living hell for right. me. Yeah. Right? As much as uh, Woody Allen is uh, such a fan of uh, the Marx Brothers and Groucho Marx, it's Larry David who is much more of the threat to polite society and oh, yeah. going to just destroy everything in, in his way. Right. And, and whereas uh, Allen is part is, is somewhat 
part of that society. Brooks is the halfway point where he's he's going to rip on it, but not quite as aggressively as Larry David will. Yeah, and and I'm and I think also just in terms of like the the level of like what what things irk people. It's also a case where like Brooks and um, uh, Larry David inhabit kind of a similar space in which I think was kind of epitomized by Mel Brooks's uh, statement on comedy uh. and tragedy. He said, you know, tragedy is when I like hurt my little finger. Comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that there's I think there's that sense that definitely in Larry David's stuff and and but Brooks shares that about like these these very trivial activities can just cause you so much irritation and heartache mm-hmm. if you're just not inclined to deal with it at that exact moment, you know, Where, yeah. whereas Alan gets to like just by virtue of like his he's so smart and such a he's so pres- uh, yes, exactly. He's such a more. He's so more dedicated towards presenting worldly, worldly things like p- philosophy and history and so on that, like, um, uh, that he's very uh, that it very rarely it's like you don't have him or, like make a whole rant about a parking space. For I example. do think <laughs> I do think the film deconstructing Harry is should just be called deconstructing Woody because like by the end of the movie he's like hmm a writer that can only function in <laughs> art but not in reality yes hmm. right. That sounds familiar. I, I think I'll like, I like that idea. Yeah. Where, whereas his early films, he, he wants to be the lovable loser yeah. uh, and get audience sympathy. He kind of um, goes away from that a little bit with, with Manhattan. But then with, I, do with, wonder, with, yeah, I do wonder if later in his career, a lot of that has to do with mm-hmm. the public persona of him changing. Right. But you're right. With with deconstructing Harry, it's like this open wound, uh, and and the thing about Albert Brooks is uh, Albert Brooks every movie is deconstructing Harry. He starts yeah. at that point. Yes. Yeah. No. Pretty pretty much. Except yeah. without all the vulgarity. Like that's the one right. thing about deconstructing <laughs> Harry that was like, damn. Look at all the f words in the first five minutes. <laughs> it's the Nixon tape of Woody's uh, works. <laughs> it could be. Just like it could be. Uh, it was what's what offends is almost not even like the fact that he's a repugnant human being in de- deconstructing Harry. But also that like he's able to express it in these terms, yeah. like you know. <laughs> but um, uh, Brook, uh, Brooks, like I, I think you're totally right, Brad. Brooks had that level with where deconstructing Harry was Woody Allen going out and f- giving a level of self awareness to his own foibles. Yeah, Brooks has had that from like the start. It was just it, you know, and honestly, I think he was a trailblazer. If not, in fact. Maybe even the most influential of the three. Because if you think about it, isn't pretty much every kind of awkward comedy where you're just like watching a guy horribly humiliate himself for our own amusement, like like from the, the office the office TV show, like over I, to like like the family guy awkward silences onwards. Or or Louis C. K. I mean like yes. I think I think Albert Brooks is a huge inspiration for the work of Rick, Ricky Gervais and Louis C. K. Exactly. I yeah. Mean, uh, I mean, I think that it's pretty. It's pretty remarkable because what I think Albert Brooks is really great at doing is admitting the narcissism behind creation, and then sort of satirizing it. Especially, especially in real life, like he he basically he's a complete asshole to a lot of, to the family at times, like completely oblivious to their emotional, you know, states and what they're experiencing because he's so involved with the idea of getting this movie made and I got to have this movie and I want it to be real and you know it becomes 
comical and absurd to watch him go to the lengths that he goes through. And by the end, it's really hilarious. So we'll get to it in a few. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, well, there's it on real life. And now yeah. we can get to but, uh But yes, actually, before we dive in on, like, on um, uh, uh, to real life, I... Brad, you got a chance to see some of um, his work of that he was doing before he got into. What did what was Albert Brooks all about before he decided to make his first movie? Well, uh, his first stuff that got uh, him noticed were his uh, comedy albums, which I haven't heard, but uh, he did have a prominent place in the very first season of Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. uh, back in the 75-76 season where uh, he did these uh, short films that were featured in the first uh, six or seven episodes or so, and they were very high-concept uh, crazy things. Like one of them was basically said, well, what would happen if uh, if Georgia, the state of Georgia, and Israel just traded places? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and another one was his uh, upcoming uh, seasons on NBC uh, that I- included uh, one uh, a show called uh, Black Vet, who was both a veteran and a veterinarian, uh, and uh, <laughs> the three of us, which uh, precluded uh, Three's Company uh, as a, a sitcom about uh, a couple and a third woman, and the entire sitcom is his going please please come into the bedroom please <laughs> i so, remember one info, it was like an infomercial kind of a thing with the co- the school of comedy he did right he did that actually that was the one uh short hit before sarah live ah. and uh it, it, yeah it, it it's like at one point uh everyone you know it, there's a spit take class <laughs> yeah. ah yeah. Uh, shades of that um uh, shades of that um, uh, short film that um, uh, Tati made. Right, right. <laughs> now, the, 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 the one of these shorts that most reminded me of the kind of films he would eventually make is uh, one called A Heart Surgery, where Albert Brooks plays Albert Brooks, of course, and he has decided that what he really wanted to do instead of comedy was to be a heart surgeon. So he got a fellow to agree, uh, with the help of some doctors, some real doctors, to perform open-heart surgery on them. So we, we watch the, the process of, of him uh, preparing and, and, and doing the surgery. And, 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 of course, the actual expert doctors do nothing but piss him off. So, so he, he's like annoyed at the real doctors trying to trying to help him do the heart surgery, and and very tonally it it connects in with uh, with his first feature. Yeah, wow, that's like, and also another thing, uh, another example of him like uh, getting uh, getting frantically neurotic about something he has to do. Um, uh, well, the thing is, he doesn't have to do it, and that—that's what's kind of funny. Funny about him is—is is that he—he—he he, he portrays such a monumental ego along with uh, the insecurities. It's it, 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 it's like this is a comedy goldmine because he's got both those things going on at once. Yeah, it's a very interesting dichotomy to explore, mm-hmm. I think, with insecurity and narcissism, yeah. sort of by, mm-hmm. playing off of one another in like a bumper car. In his brain, and that's kind of what we see on screen with, especially his first two movies. Right, and and like how that combines with whether he, you know, he has a mission, he has a he has a feel a sense of purpose that he's going to fulfill, and like uh, and he won't let uh, 
any other human stand in his way. Yeah. Um, like, all, yeah, that's the that uh, open heart surgery short is like re- sounds really like a really good intro towards his uh, first uh, feature film, uh, Real Life in 1979, uh, which is a amazing um, progenitor of the mockumentary series. Very prescient. Like, like pretty much right up there with Spinal Tap in terms of like the how ahead of its time and ahead of its concept it was. The audience loves fake. They crave fake. Reality sucks. I can do fake. I'm capable. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's not too late. We can end this movie fake. We can end it big. We can end it up. We can send the people home happy. Mr. Brooks. What? What? There's no law that says start real, can't end fake. What are they going to do? Put me in movie jail? It's a fake jail. Uh, Said concept is that Albert Brooks... Once again, playing Albert Brooks is um, wants to make the ultimate show, and the show's topic is going to be reality. It, he's and the way to do that is he would go and audition hundreds of families, find the ultimate family uh, that would be a great television subject, and then through the use of like um, uh, ca- uh, cameras worn by people and cameras scattered around the house, uh, he would watch this family just engage in real life. And that, uh, and then audiences would be captivated by what this family would be up to, but it seems to doesn't to turn things don't seem to turn out that way. For as one uh, and other members of the family uh, react quite differently than uh, Brooks would expect towards the idea of um, uh, the surveillance being put upon them. You're so right about being ahead of its time. I'd compare it uh, to network in that way, in that at, at the time it was uh, based on a on a real life, uh, no pun intended, documentary mm-hmm. uh, it called PBS? yeah, a PBS uh, from 1973 called An American Family uh, that really did uh, follow this uh, family called uh, the Loud Family around in what was a. A, a, a prehistoric version of modern reality television, except that back then, when 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 Albert Brooks was making his film, there was this idea that this would be some kind of highbrow social experiment, and and now we know it's just a shit show. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, real life can be boring, right? <laughs> um, but at the same time, like you can have these really insane uh, moments of tension and drama. But a lot of that stems from the fact that Albert Brooks, the director, is involved with the family. Like, a lot of the drama initially stems from the fact that there are cameras in the, uh, you know, in their dining room while the uh, wife is having, you know, her, her uh, time of the month. And mm-hmm. that, like, that whole thing, oh, it's just, it's painful and hilarious to watch. Because you feel, you feel bad for this family, but you also really want i mean you want to punch charles groden in the mouth too <laughs> like for kind of like okay guys this isn't really how we are you know don't don't take this too seriously she's just you know she's just overreacting i'm just like but but, but it's it's the uh question of of reality television and and, and how it's just how real impossible it for it to be real cuz the very presence 
of cameras makes it, and the, the knowledge that they're on TV makes people behave in distinctly unreal ways, right, right. Which, which, which Brooks brilliantly visualizes with these cameras uh, that people are, are the, that his cameramen are wearing on their heads. They look like giant space helmets. And the, and one of the funniest visual gags of this, uh, these serious uh, scenes of family strife and discourse. And then you, you back up and you see these people in space helmets just following this family <laughs> I, around. I, it kind of looked to me like uh, people are costume playing the um, small pods in uh, off the ship from 2001. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they have a one big circular black camera in yeah. the front. And, and yes, there's a l- and there's a lot of mirth upon like how absolutely out of place they are. Even by even at later points in the movie where uh, Brooks is offering these confessionals and there's a big guy in a space helmet <laughs> next to him nodding slowly to try to acknowledge all of all of uh, Brooks's problems that he's trying to express. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, uh, the movie is conceptually like a masterpiece because I don't think it just predicts quote-unquote reality television. By that I mean the idea that you express, Brad, Someone being sur- uh, surveyed by a camera is going to alter their behavior, and of course, it's not going to be truly real. Right. But he all at the end of the movie he invents quote quote reality television unquote unquote because he make he points out way before films such as a Truman Show this deep dark secret about humanity, which is. Um, so it reminds me of something a person said about sitcoms. And he described sitcoms perfectly. Sitcoms are familiar people in a familiar setting doing vaguely unfamiliar things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Brooks, at the end of real life, the movie, he is showing that like people want drama. They want certain kinds of drama. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's... They want drama. movie drama. That's right. There's a certain kind of drama which is set for movies and yes. uh, and TV stuff like with like climaxes and catharsis that people respond to. And if you actually have drama that people don't respond to, mm-hmm. people just get way irritated because it's not what they expect. You know, this is something that the Truman Show explored really, really well, and that was one of the the, the purposes of the film. And real life did this. 15, 20 years beforehand. Oh, yeah. Right? For sure. And and you also have this extra layer of weirdness in Albert Brooks playing Albert Brooks. Uh, uh, He obviously means us to associate the character with himself, the performer. But then, as we alluded to before... He is so fearless about making himself so unlikable, such, I mean, still very funny, but you watch the the inappropriateness, the harm, the chaos he causes as the director of this uh, version of reality television, and you've got layers and layers of comedy on top of each other, and and a lot of them have so so much bite. It's, yeah, and it, may, it makes you think too about the place of the director and how much he can control. Like to some degree, I even think of what Stanley Kubrick did again with Shelley Duvall in The Shining to get a certain performance out of her 
is basically like he tormented her. And to some degree, Albert Brooks wants to do that on occasion, or at least cause some tension, or at least like, oh, wait a minute, I think the wife might have been interested in me? I better explore that, because that's great Mm -hmm. drama, or great tension. And, you know, like, he even says early on, when, um, you know, the husband goes out, goes after the wife, he goes, that was a really good scene, you know? And not even thinking of it in terms as, they just had an argument, and there's, you know, uh, strife going on with the family. He thinks of it as a good scene for the movie. Mm-hmm. So it really does kind of, again, deconstruct how a director approaches his material. Yes, that's a great point. He, he, has, his, he has a view of how things should be. Yeah. And as long as you're orbiting within there, he's, um, uh, he's a mostly happy camper. But right. don't, don't, go in, don't go in straight too far. Or yeah, he's don't going go through depression. Right, because, <laughs> because, what, what he, what he, <laughs> because part of what he, he thinks should be is that the world should indeed revolve around him, not you know who is the real star. And as much as he gives lip service to the family being the star and to everybody in the town being the star and to the idea that, well, you know, uh, we want to portray... Uh, everyone is, as 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 a talent. Everyone uh, in 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 the town has their moments. Like he does a little musical introduction yeah. uh, for the town, but but in gives the gives him end, a whole buffet, right? In the end, you yeah. see you see that in reality, there's only room for one star, him. <laughs> yeah, again, uh, playing with the narcissist angle, and uh, what felt very prescient too is just again, kind of the influence that he's this movie has had on someone like Ricky Gervais is mm-hmm. um, that's the scene where he's talking with the uh, you know African American doctor and trying to casually bring up you know maybe you feel uncomfortable here in Phoenix for a particular <laughs> reason yeah and that to me felt like oh man that's something you'd see Ricky Gervais do in the original office yeah mm-hmm. and that's like yeah that kind of humor just it ma- makes you cringe so much, but then you you can laugh it off, and I think that's that's the whole point of a lot of Albert Brooks's comedy. Uh, he is so, and it, there's also a really great vein of comic comic uh, stuff in the movie from how how highly regarded he thinks of his own project in terms of how scientific it is. Look at all this equipment. And yeah. we have this whole school um, uh, <laughs> coming, in, uh, uh, coming in and these psychologists are monitoring things. But when things like start falling awry, <laughs> he just what, like, just like with the, with that heart surgery, he just, mm-hmm. he turns on those guys <laughs> really quick. Like, going, Oh, well, why don't you just give cups to everybody? Give everybody a drug test. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'll do one, I'll do one right now. <laughs> He's, yeah, it's 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 there's such a great contrast between yeah. his highfalutin ideas and just how how it there is a level of like where he he's having a great project and it should be recognized about he's going to do something great and how it's falling short and like his internal psychology is at war with all these highfalutin ideals with it, which mm-hmm. is, which is, um, uh, I, I think is, I think is a really robust line of comedy. Something that, and something that's kind of been really inspired, like a lot of a lot of sh- TV shows and movies out today about how, like, like something like Election, which I love and is one of my, I think one of the best movies ever made, but it would not have been made without this kind of attitude that 
because it it builds on this kind of attitude that that Brooks does in his movies and in this film Real Life. You, yeah, you see what I? It's the dichotomy between what people say they want mm-hmm. and between uh, and what they actually want is so mined for great material through this movie. Right. <laughs> And you can have good intentions, but even those intentions can be selfish. Yeah. I mean, do you guys just, uh, I am curious, do you guys think that, like, he was always kind of wanted to, like, use this as a big pitch for Hollywood, its character in the movie, I mean? Or did he really think, I was going to make a great statement about humanity with this TV show? Well, I think, yes, he he thought he was going to make a great statement, but more to the point, it was going to be his great statement. So, you know, he he had this, uh, he really did have an idea he thought was going to work, but what was more important to him was that it was his idea rather than what the idea was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love how, like, that, that, that ego is... I mean, I think the ego is a little more explicit in, in maybe in maybe in some Woody Allen films, but not others. But like, it's just great how it like peaks out. Like one of my favorite quotes on it, it like looks at that when he's he makes this really tortured analogy to about like how many how many people he's um, uh, interviewed, and he says, "Why if we took like every interv- inter- every interviewee and and we represented them by two eggs, we could feed this this uh, small city for a bre- breakfast for a month." It's no, this is your standard two egg breakfast, which <laughs> includes toast and some pancakes. Um, uh, now. Now, you may think, boy, did it must have taken a lot of calculation to figure this out. And it, it certainly did. And it was also very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he's like... <laughs> he, just, like, he just like does... Maybe he is a progenitor. Maybe not a progenitor, but he may be also like the... Um, uh, one of the best examples of the humble brag. Yeah. No, that's definitely right. true. That's and and definitely true. the use of irony. Um, it's kind of David Letterman style humor. Uh-huh. Oh, so uh, right. Yeah. So we, right. And, and this was before uh, Letterman. Yeah, so. he told, right. And yeah. Letterman mm-hmm. was known for doing that exact same yeah. thing of like taking the talk show for sure. and like pointing out how, boy, you know, you might think this is just a grand uh, bit of entertainment, but no, this is really dumb and it stinks in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I'm going to, and I'm just going to show you why with this kind of, with this kind of attitude. Yeah, it just pulls back the curtain so you can see all the, the tricks and the you know the certain uh, things that happen in that setting. And I think that, man, Larry Sanders is another one of those amazing right? examples. Of right, this kind of comedy that works so well. And again, it helps it helps to have Rip Torn um, <coughs> by as your we side, will, as we will see in a later film. Yes, yeah, for sure. So yeah, and 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 honestly, I kind of think that like Brooks here is doing. A little better than Letterman because to me he kind mm-hmm. of it just occurs to me that he's kind of like this perfect combination of like Letterman on the one side and then like Bob Hope or <laughs> slash Billy right. Crystal at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. he's like because Bob Hope is kind of for all of his like uh, comic stuff in his early career is kind of known for being a little bit of like a, a simpering gladhander in his mm-hmm. way. Like oh I love you guys I love you guys and support the troops and, and so forth. And Brooks has that, but yeah. Brooks also has that Letterman part of his personality. Yeah, and like sarcastic, sardonic yeah. kind of yeah. approach, and uh, mm-hmm. just very, very, uh, just uh, very self-aware, and not in an obnoxious way. Like there are certain examples of comedy that I think get like just get really, I don't know, too, too all about the self to where it gets, I don't know, just kind of um, indulgent. 
Like, I never feel like Albert Bro- like there have been some Woody Allen movies. I'm like, this is kind of indulgent, but but Albert Brooks is about indulgence. Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> right. probably it. But it doesn't feel indulgent mm-hmm. at right. the same time. Well, because he knows it. Because he knows it, and he give, makes an audience aware that like he's yeah 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 I, yeah. I mean, like, there's a at the end of the movie. He's in a clown outfit. <laughs> it's right. incredibly obvious. Fire. Right. He's yeah. incredibly obvious. <laughs> incredibly obvious that like about exactly how he expects you to regard his character and what he's been what he's been up to. This belongs on a very short list of movies, and you know, you mentioned Spinal Tap uh, was one of them, where very subtle humor is put right next to very broad humor. And they both work. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, for me, this this is his funniest film, and one of the funniest films. And also, I, I think Charles Grodin uh, deserves some credit as kind of uh, Brooks's opposite, as the uh, far too normal head of the uh, of the family. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Heartbreak Kid, and of course, Midnight Run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, and his the 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 kind of both Brooks. And Grodin in this movie have like, there. I think it cannot be highlighted enough the kind of amazingly difficult thing they had to do, because Brooks has to show these elements of like narcissism and and like a little bit of self-loathing just to show yourself as a care, guy doing awful things. And yet make you want to keep watching and kind of like him and want to see what happens next. And Grodin has to go and, like, play a normal guy who's trying to act normal in a very abnormal situation and then get into uh, very abnormal things as a result of that. Like, like the... Like that horse scene is just so, <laughs> yeah. oh, just the way, yes, and but just so funny in just the kind of the most passive, ag- passive aggressive, not even aggressive, I guess, way of how he just says, uh, just please, please don't, don't film this, please don't, yeah, <laughs> please, you know, there's, there's so much. If you think about it, there's so much existential agony to come from. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> come from this guy. Just no, just don't, don't, don't make it public. What I this horrible thing I've just done. And how this experience created a nervous breakdown. Yes, within him, it's pretty, it's pretty devastating to see. And then, but you get the side of Albert Brooks kind of going, well, now things got boring because uh, everybody was in a funk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all it's then, then eventually we get to the montage, and that's beautiful. Because <laughs> right. what's real life compared to showbiz? <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. I, I mean, like, yeah. To, to me, this the, the dichotomy is just totally epitomized on the sequence when they're they just had, they audition all the the fam uh, the families and the big and the big and just the different questions that he uses to say, oh no, they can't do that. That's not appropriate. Yeah. No, can't do that. You know, you need to have this many kids and this uh, this and this kind of, which is just a great. Statement of like what people quote unquote expect from what a quote unquote normal family is going to be like, right? Right. But then at the end, he goes and says, "This is just this great line in a career which has so many great lines." But he's he says, "Well, okay." In the end, we went it down to two families, and um, <laughs> and uh, could I? And how do we pick? You know, I could have I could give you a, a host of scientific reasons, but hey, I'm a I'm a comedian, not a liar. <laughs> and so, look, one one family is in a southern location, other family is in, in uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. And what, are you going to have a winter in Wisconsin? And everybody <laughs> in the studio just laugh. 
we all, yeah. they, they all know the scientific basis can go about so far, but at the end, you know, you've got a show to do, you know. Exactly. You know, and and now now that now that great so I mean, yeah, Brooks is to me is like his achievement and the way he presents himself is like a dude like river dancing on the edge of a razor. Because I think if you go too much on one side, then mm-hmm. you're clearly doing an Austin Powers level wink to the audience. Like, no, no, I don't even mean it. Oh, no, guys, I'm really a good guy. But if you go to the other side, it's so easy to go and like, oh, I, this guy's, I don't want to follow him. Mike Myers <laughs> is kind of the antithesis of Albert Brooks. And I don't, I never responded to his comedy because it is literally winking to the audience. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, some pe- I understand. Like a lot of people like Wayne's World and Austin Powers, and they're they have laughs, but it is again like, look at how funny I am, guys. <laughs> and Albert Brooks is like, look at how pathetic I can be, guys. Right. You know, and kind of laughing at the patheticness of it all. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Like there is a level where like there's a level when Brooks shows things where it's ha- which shows an appreciation of okay, I get it. I'm I'm doing these things that are just wrong and they're mm-hmm. they're not good things. Um, um, but like we're just having a look at it and just seeing how ri- how ridiculous this could be. But I know it's ridiculous. Myers does things. He may be more do more verbal, more parody. But to me, he's no he's no better than like Chris Farley wetting his pants and just like every yeah. every influence of his is love me love me <laughs> won't you love me what do i need to do look it's, look i have a funny hat look yeah. my teeth look all weird look i said fart a lot will you love me yeah and characters like fat bastard i mean it just rubs me the wrong way it, it always had and i i mean yes he had good moments on saturday night live but overall i just never understood the appeal of mike myers <laughs> nah. uh, also, whereas albert brooks like again he deconstructs filmmaking and narcissism in real life and then he goes into relationship territory which i adore uh we finished a rough mix so there's nothing to do till we go down to dallas and then we'll preview and then we'll see what happens and then i'll probably have to go back and recut the whole film david did say i was the best editor he ever worked with so that's very nice it's a nice thing to say mm-hmm. think it's gonna be a good movie well, I can't tell because I've been looking at it so long. I don't quite know what I'm looking at anymore. But uh, yeah, I do think a lot of it was saved in the editing. Why do you say that? What do you mean? I mean, do you say that because you're editing it? Sure. Ah, uh, yes. His next film, like he he goes like more intimate and more personal. Um, it's uh, 1981's uh, Modern Romance, where uh, Brooks. Uh, playing a character called Robert Cole, so not Albert Brooks this time, but uh, he, ha- he starts the movie having a bro- uh, breaking up with his longtime girlfriend, and then uh, the rest of the movie looks with the repercussions of of what does he do after he's broken up? How does he deal with like his um, uh, work environment where he's uh, making a science fiction movie with George Kennedy <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the director of that being James L. Brooks, no relation. Um, how does he, how does he go and like, uh, deal with, uh, deal with the breakup personally? Like, um, uh, does he try to includes him trying to, um, follow the health food craze, the, uh, oh, the exercise craze and trying to date again. And what the, and how does he, um, uh, uh, try to, um, uh, work on the boundaries between him and his, w- uh, would be ex-girlfriend. 
to the extent that there are ones in his head. <laughs> she, she wishes and, there were bad and, and it includes a, a the uh, um, funniest trip to with Quaaludes uh, until um, Wolf of Wall, Wall Street. Street. Right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice, exactly. Y- you know, this is the one through line from, from real life uh, to modern romance is just this commitment Brooks has to being will being willing to be unlikable to taking what so many comedians have uh have done in, in relationship movies as the sad sack loser who oh I screwed up I ruined my relationship and I'm neurotic about it how am I going to get back with this girl and 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 can it possibly work and and and, and Brooks takes it to, uh, looks at the the absurdity of this and makes his character here absolutely psychotic and frightening. I mean, it's filmed <laughs> as a comedy. It's filmed as a comedy, but really just a few notches uh, stylistically. And this is a stalker uh, thriller. Well, people originally yeah. thought the police song "Every Breath You Take" was romantic. Right, right. <laughs> it's about as romantic as as, the, as this movie because this is a guy who. I mean, he will not take no for an answer. He breaks up with with his girlfriend. In, in a particularly cruel and heartless way, uh, also in a very funny way, but, uh, oh, yeah. but uh, and then he is, uh, again, so narcissistic that, that he believes that, that he lets his jealousy, which, most, which a Woody Allen or a, another comedian would mine for laughs as a weakness, as a foible, and he uses his jealousy so aggressively and it, 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 in a way where you you really feel bad for for for, for this woman he's dating on and off again. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like uh, Rupert Pupkin uh, merged oh. in the pod with Jake LaMotta. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. But funny, but very fun. funny. Yeah, very somehow funny. it's still funny. Yeah. that's the that's it's, the brilliance of Albert Brooks. Right, is is he gets this dark and is still funny. And you say psychotic, and it scares me a little bit because I would say that this represents how I reacted to a breakup more than most <laughs> movies. Um, and it's not to say that, like, oh, God, I was stalking my ex-girlfriend, but that scene where he's on Quaaludes, uh, like, stumbling around in his, in his house is just yeah. scene for scene, moment to moment, like, oh, my God, I've done that. I've gotten drunk. And I start going through my Facebook friends. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, look at all my friends. Yeah. Oh my God! Yes, and I start talking to my cat. I'm like, "Hey, hey Lucy, I have a lot of friends. Look, I've, I mean, I've done those things, and I've played a record. Like, I don't want to listen to this record. It's too sad. Like, I changed the record, and it's like, yeah. man. And I've had a friend, probably like Bruno Kirby, be like, "Hey, man, here's something that'll help. <laughs> here's some pot. Smoke this. You'll feel better." Um, but yeah, it's it is it's very painful. Very. Uh, nerve-wracking to watch but yet hilarious to watch albert brooks on quaaludes because i don't know if we've seen him like you know act drunk in other movies before i've been certainly not high or stone but like i thought he pulled it off so magnificently (laughs) because like how long of a stretch is that like 15 minutes of 
him just by himself monologuing. Right. And it's yes. never not funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it's consistently great. <laughs> yeah, it's right. The, he's he's able to like do a, a run of sequence just like really, really well. And and something that he's manifested in a lot of not just his movies, but his like uh, but his work on The Simpsons um, and his, and uh, various guests uh, guest spots he's managed to as do. an actor he's great too. Mm-hmm. I mean maybe he's still playing a little bit of the Albert Brooks persona even in something like Broadcast News, but he still manages to make a memorable character. Right, because in Broadcast News he's playing the character that uh, we would have expected more in, in a film like this. Yeah. He is the lovable loser in, yeah. in broadcast mm-hmm. news. But here, whereas he certainly, I think we can all relate to the idea of being devastated at a breakup, yeah. there then uh, becomes this extra level of entitlement yeah, that, that, he repre- that he represents. Yeah, that's the really scary. Uh, like, you know, mm-hmm. calling her at work inappropriately. Mm-hmm. And then showing up at like a business meeting she's having at a restaurant. I've never done that stuff. Right, and <laughs> she and she uh, th- th- this this uh, she is ridiculously patient uh, with uh-huh. him. He, uh, and ev- uh, eventually, to kind of get into a little spoiler territory, uh, they, 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 she does accept it back, and they and they get back together. But the uh, film makes it clear that it's not happily ever after because this couple couple, this couple really can never be happy because they're completely dysfunctional and the minute the minute he's happy in a relationship with her he'll break up with her again yeah (laughs) i don't remember i forget that there's a particular i don't know if it was a comedy but or or a non-comedic film but there is there was one there's a scene in a film where a guy is walking and another person was walking and they make a comment about like well we were all walking alone but Let's walk alone together, which mm. kind of, I think, is touches on that kind of relationship. They, especially on Albert Brooks's side, his character's side, he needs to be with this person and argue with this person because that's the big, uh, that's, that's the, that's his, what he feels is his life mission. <laughs> and, yeah. and now to the extent he'll be happy about that, well, is his character ever really going to be? Yeah. happy there's, in any conventional sense of the term you know there's mm-hmm. a line in uh changing lanes that's always stuck with me and that william hurt at one point goes you know your drug of choice isn't alcohol you're addicted to chaos mm-hmm. and i think that's yep. that's his albert brooks's character and it, it's like i gotta keep creating chaos because that's what i'm used to in this relationship mm-hmm. and yes. even when he's not in the relationship he's still doing it in right 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 cycles right there's a whole right there's a kind of a tradition there's a kind of particular like archetype that's around of the like white knight syndrome which like um of of someone who thinks that some uh uh, uh would-be paramour is meant to be saved yeah so uh, so you 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 ride into the rescue <laughs> to just uh, do these maneuvers to try and uh, to try and you know, show what a um uh, uh show what a uh, like um uh, crusader for this for this person you are and brooks brooks i think is on point of on in in this in in, in modern romance this right. i he is he like in real life the mo- his movie real life he has a mission the mission is i'm going to be with this person and and I'm going to overcome any barrier to do to do this. And the movie makes a really interesting satirical point at the end because mm. he throws the marriage card. And it's clear at the end of the movie that the marriage card has nothing the, the hell to do with intimacy. Mm. 
Yeah. It's all about, this is how I can get her. That's how I get her. I got, it. I got a, a ring on it. I got a ring on it. It's a power dynamic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, it's it's he's a control freak. Somebody, uh, I for, uh, maybe Chris Rock, but there's a comedian who basically said, uh, "Yeah, be, ask, being married basically means I want to make it illegal for you to sleep with other men." <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's right. And and right. That's kind of like the yeah treating treating a wedding proposal as the equivalent of a neurotic panic button is one a really amazing like viewpoint that the movie shows yeah, and, and just a really kind of dark portrayal of codependence on another person like i got to be with this person to feel whole and you know maybe to some degree vice versa we don't get as much insight to her i think but it's not again her movie right. it's not from her perspective right. i realize that but it's also like i hadn't realized this you know first couple times i watched it he is really yeah, so insecure that he's like, "Oh, you can't wear that to work. You can't. You can't go out and wear it like mm-hmm. that." I was like, "I can't imagine being that controlling of my partner." Right. It, it's one of the most uh, interesting explorations of jealousy yeah, a, yeah, as an emotion. Sure. I mean, we're we're talking Othello level uh, jealousy I here. Mean, I think it even <laughs> maybe <know>. transcends <laughs> jealousy in the sense that, like, in the sense of like how if narcissism is just this, I believe, you know, just total fascination with how things relate to yourself. Like, I think this shows how in Brooks's Brooks's character to me doesn't actually, he rebels against the idea that this girl that he's in love with has any life apart from his own. That, that, mm-hmm. that such a thing should not be possible. That's what rails against. That's what he rails against the most. Yeah. That like that that there is another human being outside of himself mm-hmm. that he cares about. <laughs> so, He's checking her mail and stuff. I mean, her phone bill. Yeah, it's right. so and, creepy. And, but, and this, and I want to point out, like, right. And I, but I, I want to point out on that note, and unlike and unlike many other scenes in the movie, such as the Quaalude scene, he does this really cool comedic thing. I want to highlight, which is that like Woody Allen is known for being neurotic obviously but he's his neuroticism manifests itself kind of like all at once he is always undercutting himself and he's sure, always like sure. he's like he's quoting something or like or uh, and and then saying something immediately after that's completely the opposite brooks extends it a little because he and i think he creates a lot of comedic material by going okay i'm gonna do this one thing i'm gonna do this one thing i'm totally dedicated to this one thing i'm doing this one thing no i'm not gonna do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah. He, how many times does he go to that phone and call or not you know call or not call right yeah and that Very horrible like scene in swingers where yeah, yes yeah. right exactly that's such a great that's such a great connection and yeah. then look at that date that quote-unquote date from hell which literally boy how la can you get whereas like Whereas the date entirely consists of him picking up a lady, driving her around to her own house and saying, you know what's not going to work? Get out. Well, yeah, again, it, it, it's, it's the comedy of, of cruelty, but it's the cruelty of the one person in the movie we're supposed to identify with because he's the only one who's given a complete character arc. So hmm. uh, kind of in, in the taxi driver mode, yeah. we're, we're forced to identify with somebody we might not otherwise be so comfortable with. He doesn't even commit yeah. to... Um, consistency in the movie in that he veers away from the relationship exploration and decides to have a few scenes, a couple of very memorable scenes involving editing that mm-hmm. I adore. Like I, like, I know Patrick at one point 
said they really stand out in this movie as kind of uh, being not necessarily out of place, but just very different from all the portrayals of, you know, romance and uh, codependence and just the dynamic that he shares with the woman. Suddenly we're with him at work. And, yep. you know, suddenly they're in a Foley studio, which, you know, again, space floor. I don't know, space floor. <laughs> like, there's just so many great <laughs> moments of like, And that Foley studio is, is wonderful. I mean, it's like, maybe it's a detour a little bit, but I love it. I don't care. It's like, maybe it's in, like a little bit of a short film of this is what editors do mm-hmm. in the midst of this relationship dramedy and i like it i i think it's i think it's great comedy gold and i like bruno kirby so yeah and there's <laughs> there's another fun detour that involves uh, albert brooks's own brother uh was it super dave uh, einstein yeah. Yeah, bob, uh, real name uh, is bob Ein- right. bob einstein right yeah and um and he plays a uh, his his brother plays a shoe salesman and he knows how to push all of uh, albert brooks's button to make him realize he'll never truly be happy and confident unless he buys these shoes and this this equipment and everything yeah isn't so that it's a is, wonderful they have a there's a wonderful comic rapport between the two brothers oh sure yeah. you could buy that but uh it will g- almost certainly give you a skin rash yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like yeah is it's is i find that just phenomenally ironic in, uh that about about bob einstein's career as super dave osborne mm-hmm. because because Albert Einstein, the um, scientist, had thought up this whole theory of relativity, part of which is the idea that different mm-hmm. speeds are, are, can are look different relative to like the speed that you're moving. And in a, in a really weird way, like um, Albert Einstein, the comedian who changed his name to Albert Brooks, does a little similar thing whereby if you're, bro- if you're a very funny, smart comedian, but aren't you going to be a... Far- a look like a smarter comedian if your brother does these incredibly stupid gags where you're <laughs> where you're best basically doing like physical comedy of like your body getting hurt or blowing yeah. up and stuff he's like don't the jackass you... of his time exactly yeah. don't you look that much smarter ironically that's a theory of relativity but it's better because it involves actual relatives <laughs> very true very true now i now i now jim i'm super super curious about what you brought up with um with the idea of the, the editing of his career in the as an editor in the in uh, in this of making this science fiction movie and does why it belong is, in the movie right does it belong there why is it there would the movie be better or worse without it and um uh, Brad, do you have any impressions on Oh, I, I think we need stuff like that because if you are doing nothing but following uh, Albert Brooks's character along his path of darkness and desperation, that, you know, I mean, Brooks is good enough to make that funny, but he also is good enough to know that you need some release. You need to alleviate that. So having some subplots, some scenes that don't involve this, let us breathe a little bit of a a sigh of release, which is in otherwise an incredibly tense comedy. That's also Hmm. kind of how some people deal with um, depression or anxiety by fully immersing themselves into their work. Or at least they try to, anyway. It's like, at one point, he's like, I know what I need to do. I need to sit down, and I'm going to do the best work that I've ever done. And then he's like, no, I, no, I can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> going home. Yes. But it's like, no, he gives us those moments, I think, uh, like you, like Brad said, for some downtime from all the uh, um, neuroses that he's experiencing. And plus, it's like, 
he seems to enjoy work, and he's able to distract himself for, for a little while, and it helps to have a friend nearby. And it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting how the one moment of pure triumph is when he's holding a box and running around on a concrete floor to make these foley stuff to make the to make the space floor sound mm-hmm. just right. Yeah. Like he's at that moment he is unabashedly happy and satisfied from it. At this point in the podcast you should insert a sound effect of Hulk screaming. <laughs> Hulk or Hulk or Hulk running. I, that which is a great detail because back then you you couldn't call up these sound effects at the touch of a button. You had to look through thousands and thousands of feet of tape <laughs> to find the one episode of The Incredible Hulk which actually had the Hulk running. Right. I love that guy. <laughs> that that, that Foley artist guy is like, I think you saved the picture. <laughs> I, I wanna... Of course, this is also a world in which, jo- in which George Kennedy gets to star in science fiction. Well, yeah. to be fair, that's also a very... I think he was also parroting a lot of like... There was a lot of kind of actors who may have been a little past their prime and they've ended up in the like these these cheesy science fiction films this has happened a lot in the 50s and uh, 50s and 60s and i mean of course it was parodied in itself of like um with like peter graves in um uh, airplane right oh like, sure sure and and hell george kennedy was in many of these kind of disaster kind of films mm-hmm. so but and naked but, gun yeah, yeah. And, and leslie nielsen was in forbidden planet so this like the um it's all connected man yeah well and well in terms of connection, I want to ri- I want to run these two things by you with regards to those because I think there is a little interesting thing that could be mined by his choice of making him an editor. Okay, one is there's a a, a great French film called Cachet, and it oh was, God, and it's yeah. a and I it is a film about a a guy who works for a TV. So he was a speaker for a uh, a, t- a TV show, and he also is a producer, so he helps edit it. And him and his family are tormented by videotapes, which show his house, where he works. Very lost like, highway m- kind m- of setup, yeah. Mm-hmm. M- and, but the tapes show a continuous um, mm-hmm. travel through a house, uh, like to a, to a street. And one of the great points about the movie, which is a, which is a tremendous film and I highly recommend, but Probably part of... Probably my favorite Haneke film. Probably. Yeah, and, and but it is a very horrific thriller, but the horror and thrills come from, part of it comes from, this is a guy who's defined his life his own way, and the fact that he gets these tapes means, no, no, this is what's real. You don't get to edit your story to only say the things you like. Now look at that with, <laughs> look at that with the relationship with um, his job in mind. Like, remember how there's a wonderful sequence where he adds suspense. Mm-hmm. But the director totally didn't want suspense. He just wants George Kennedy to say this one line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe it's a case like, like what you said earlier, um, Jim, about how um, he has this sense of creativity. But where, why, what creativity is a sense of imposition. Mm. The way, like, I'm going to put assert my own reality upon other people in other situations. Right? And maybe that's something, maybe that particular kind of workplace. And he kind of does that, too, in the next movie. Because he's, like, idealizing Easy Rider, and he wants to insert that into his own life. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He, he, he does do that. But I want to run another, another comparison do. with Crimes and Misdemeanors. <gasps> another, sense of, another sense of two elements which are kind of disparate mm-hmm. but one of the disparate elements is a guy trying to go and make a movie 
and how does he edit things to make movies go to make the movie look something that interests mm. him you know so i want to just run that by you guys i mean what does how well, do those justifies how do those like those how do those like affect like an um, potential impression of what brooks is doing with real with modern romance well, well, you're really on target with this idea of of control and how if he can control these films through his editing, he applies that same logic uh, to his own personal life, and and so it's it's no accident. You know, he is he is editing his life to be what he envisions, and when it isn't what he envisions he literally has a breakdown he mm-hmm. cannot cope yeah i concur <laughs> <laughs> well it as you were sense. well well jim as you were as you were alluding to like when he's he has this you know he has a particular m- movie kind of romance of, that he has in mind and then how it how he badly reacts when it fails well he's ta- and he takes a particular kind of movie an american movie <laughs> yes. the ultimate american dream and sees how that is may fall short in his next film uh lost in america in uh, 1985 insert uh, born to be wild clip here <laughs> <laughs> the um uh, yes um uh yes this wild man is um uh, uh married to um uh julie uh julie haggerty's li- um uh as david and linda howard and they are high they are high flying executives who uh, who feel dissatisfied with their life but instead of like um uh, in, uh, instead of finding, say, a, a hobby <laughs> uh, or, or like common interests, they decide what they need to do is to follow the American dream by going out and uh, going riding off and uh, out into the desert and like discovering what America is uh, truly all about. Phil Shabano. Why? Phil Shabano. I don't know why the underqualified son of a bitch. I'll tell you why, because life isn't fair. But you know what'll happen? It'll balance out. He'll buy that boat I've had to look at in that stupid catalog for three years, and he'll crash in Catalina and die, and seals will eat him. Come on, now, you like Phil. So what? I'm just telling what might be. Fine, he won't die, and he won't be eaten, but he'll never find his way back to the mainland. And... We gotta uh, touch Indians. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and, um, and... And that leads to, um, uh, uh, that leads to discoveries that, uh, both, like... Out and uh, what they find outside, and what they find their relationship inside upon, like um, upon how <laughs> inaccurate their impressions could be. Right. And, and of course, when you say they, uh, pretty much we mean him, because he I- imposes this vision uh, on on his wife, who is agreeable enough to and and supportive. Um, but we 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 again see this continuation, probably. For the uh, for the last time for a while for Brooks uh, of exploring his own uh, persona uh, uh, of egomania. Now I don't know uh, where you guys are in this one. I I think that the, the, the Lost in America is, is one of his most critically acclaimed films, but to me it's not quite as funny as the as the two be, that came before. There's some really funny set pieces, and and this is a a film that that has. Uh, the, like the the scene with uh, Gary Marshall, uh, the scene where, where where they're arguing over the nest egg. These are uh, really 
great set pieces, but it, it to me it's not quite paced uh, all the way through, and definitely has some problems as you head to the end. Hmm. Uh, well, it's still or my not. Favorite. It's my favorite Albert Brooks movie. Um, man. Well, I think first of all, 1985 <laughs> was you know the year where not only myself but people like Colin Suter and Eric Childress fell in love with movies and. So again, nostalgia plays a little bit into my appreciation for the film, but also I think that um, I think even Ebert himself said this was like for the first hour the most perfect comedy ever made, hmm. and I I like it more than most of Woody Allen's movies even, and I would say that only up until he becomes a crossing guard, I think I think it's perfect. Um, from that point on, I'm a little bit like. I don't know if he knew because, like, even people to this day, I think it, uh, even in his last movie, like a, a an airline passenger sitting next to him questions the ending of Lost in America is like, didn't that feel a little rushed? A little, uh, I don't know. It felt like you just kind of you know shoehorned an ending in there, and it didn't feel complete. And I think even Ebert felt that way. And to some degree, I do agree that it's just like, ah, don't really know how to end this. Let's just end it with me going back to New York, and that's it, and it ended there. Um. I'm not saying I don't know what I would have liked to have seen from that point forward. Maybe another scene with him and that crazy coworker and a boss or something. But I do feel like a, a, I feel a little sense of incompletion at the end. And yet I still I I think it's almost laugh like laugh out loud funny for the majority of the movie. Um, the you know the scene with his boss, then him going to his wife at at her work. I I think like. There's a million quotes to come from this movie, mm-hmm. but I mean, to, like the one of the greatest comedy scenes of all time is him and Gary Marshall, without question. Right, and and the setup there is uh, the centerpiece of the film is that they they've got this. Uh, um, trailer that they're going to go uh, find America in and they stop off in Vegas and uh, Julie Haggerty's character winds up, uh, who, who it turns out is a, uh, a gambling addict and should mm-hmm. never be allowed in a casino loses all their money and Brooks in top Brooks form tries to explain to Gary Marshall who is <laughs> probably his funniest uh, bit uh, <laughs> on screen about how it would be great business for the for the casino if they just gave them their money back. <laughs> Marshall, I mean, Marshall does a good job but I think a part of it is that he has a very good um, resting sneer face. Yeah. Like they just, he's just looking at um, Brooks normally as Brooks is putting up a mile a, mile a minute spiel to try and uh, get the money back and it just cuts back to me and you just feel like <laughs> what the hell is this guy <laughs> yeah I why thought... why is he here <laughs> where is he going with this and his like final statement is just great and we're, i think I, we, it we're is not giving the... you the money <laughs> <laughs> it is mostly the albert brooks show but i do like that he gives julie haggerty a couple of scenes like there's one where she's talking with her co-worker about feeling really um incomplete in her life and then you know that kind of foreshadows how she ultimately uh explodes when she gets to vegas and does this horribly impulsive uh bit of gambling and gambling the nest egg away and how she feels about that so i think we get a little insight more into the you know her as the wife figure Mm -hmm. and feeling a little bit of that kind of um not necessarily suffocation but just 
Um, I mean, it's really, I mean, this is like, to me, what American Beauty wishes it could be because it's kind of like deconstructing the American dream, um, you know, a couple wanting more out of life than just their normal humdrum nine to five jobs and kind of looking to connect on some deeper level that they never got to before. It's because they, I went the business route. I had friends who went and found themselves and I chose business because I wanted to make a career. And then he sort of realizes that he doesn't want to do that anymore. But then again, what happens at the end? A compromise. And, and it's a great subversion, though, of, of the dream that as, as you see all these landmarks, yeah, uh, yeah. the landmarks take a back seat to their bickering and fighting to the point where they're having their big blowout at Hoover Dam. And he's like, nice dam. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you want right. to jump first or shall I? <laughs> right. Yes. The um, uh, right. The the personal getting in the way of like their ostensible mission yet again. Um, it kind of looks now to me from these, um, from even from his early works that Brooks doesn't quite do endings that well. Like um, that's been the number one criticism I've heard from all people. I, even arguably in real life, they should have had his himself thrown in jail. But instead, he's like, the music is very triumphant, of course, ironically. Yeah. But then it just has him, you know, ecstatic. I think that was kind of perfect in real life, mm-hmm. though. But okay. I'm just prejudiced towards that I like film. the ending of Defending yeah. Your Life. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, but in modern romance, is just... The, that movie loses me at the end when, like, I don't... I, he plays that card, but then you just don't do... Just, just don't do it. And, like, I just... I could not conceive of um I could not conceive of a person literally doing that and so that no, actually that's true. That's that, true. that yanked me out of a movie as if it was like show, as if I was on Showtime at the Apollo I was like mm-hmm. yeah, it's nope. it's a huge blemish for that film yeah. and by the way it's also kind of un- unbelievable in the end of Taxi Driver but then in that it actually is a fantasy <laughs> that mm-hmm. of Sybil Shepherd's character <laughs> is getting to that cabin being all friendly it's like just no it's yeah. no no uh, no freaking way I don't know if like Albert Brooks who was also in Taxi Driver got there, <laughs> made a time <laughs> there, or or not from um, from one movie to from one movie to the other. And in Lost in Lost in America to me is just a very good premise that was done twenty five percent of the way because, because it to me like Julie Haggerty's nest egg, it loses everything after Vegas. For one thing. For one thing, it's uh, uh, when Haggerty's character does lose all the money, Albert Brooks is very mad. He's very mad. He's hyper. He's neurotic. But unlike the previous two movies where it mines the territory about like how overly neurotic is a comment on his narcissism and his self-involvement upon his own issues, when it happens in Lost in America... I completely understand it. That's, of course you're supposed to be angry and be neurotic. You lost all your money. You're broke. Yeah. <laughs> that, therefore, all these, I mean, those scenes may be like pointing, maybe doing the same attempted things that he was trying to do in modern romance in real life. But to me, I'm like, no, no. Haggerty is bad. You should you should dump her. You should leave her. And you and 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 all the stuff that you yell about her about the nest egg mm-hmm. is is absolutely correct. Don't get her near a 
bird laying output <laughs> that you have in a in a habitat for sparrows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so but I don't mind, of, I don't mind that they make up. I don't know why I find it really sweet that he forgives her later on. But again, he feels threatened. Like she just got picked up by this other guy and He's got to have her back because that's what he's used to. It also gives him the great line, I lost a whole woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, and, and like, and I mean, I compare this like, like his whims of fortune in, in, in these, in these films, like, like they, they act like to me in a way opposite that say something like um, a director like Preston Sturgis would do. Preston Sturgis was, would have his characters always be befallen upon the whims of fate, you know. Uh, Kishlovsky does that too, like Fate, oh God, fate, yeah. fate like befalls people in ways that they expect or don't expect, regardless of their insecurities or true, their, true, true. their own foibles. But there's none of that for Albert Brooks. Mm. Albert Brooks has a reset in his last two, in both Modern Romance and Lost America. It's like, yeah, we could have gone home the whole time. I mean, what kind of Wizard of Oz fantasy, you know, bullshit is Are that? Are you saying you, you know? don't like the employment agency scene? That's funny. That At, guy is funny. After, oh, you mean the hundred thousand dollar box <laughs> of jobs? Also, like, I mean, maybe maybe the movie is kind of working in a in a different level by having them fail so completely in Vegas well, and be resorted to like yeah. such horrible menial labor. But to me, it also the movie change i think based on what happened to them in vegas it okay well it does right and yeah. maybe it's a com explicit commentary but to me it loses a lot of dramatic momentum in the sense that like because it doesn't match the grandeur of something that like easy rider was able to do on a much <laughs> lower on a much lower budget and from people who were mostly stoned when they made it it still manages to express americana in a way that like in a way lost america does not they I feel literally, like there's, there's going to be that generational disconnect for me with EC Writer. I don't, I don't get it. Oh well, okay. And I, I mean, understand. I understand why people love it. I'm not saying that like it's a bad movie. It's just not. I don't click with it. Sure, I'm, I'm not actually. I'm actually personally, I'm not a huge fan. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the movie. Sure, like, sure. And like, I don't think, for example, dialogue consisting sixty percent of us and oh wow, man's like is uh, really made for some compelling like dialogue. But what I mean to say on Easy Rider is at least it went to say, hey, here's what New Orleans is like. Here's what going through the, traveling through the South is like. Here's what traveling through the Grand Canyon is like. Yeah. I mean, for, I mean, boy, maybe it's making, maybe Lost America is making a big meta point upon, oh, boy, this trip to America to find, discover all of America falls horribly short. But me, I, I kind of find, I find a level of disappointment that, National Lampoon's Vacation actually does a more of a treatise on America well, well, than I, Lost in America I, I is do about think, America. I do think Lost in America is doing that purposely uh, for comedic yeah. effect. And They're lost. Right. The, 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 yeah. Right. And and it is and just like Easy Rider was so much about the hippie mentality and how you know how that ideal affects. Uh, uh, Dri driving through America. Here it's the yuppie mentality. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brooks, who's you know never uh, shy about his criticism, is, is I think really uh, taking the piss out of the yuppies here and basically saying that you yeah. know there 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 is a shallowness uh, uh, so much to the extent that. Um, that we can't even complete our journey. Our journey, we just give up. Well, even Julia you know. Haggerty makes a great point mm -hmm. at one point. Where it's like, 
if you really want to drop out, you drop out with nothing. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's that's. It's almost like you can't you can't escape money as much as you want to. And so they wind up in Vegas, and that's exactly what happens. Even though they have good intentions, they're like, "We're here to get married. We're here to have a nice time. We're here to camp out under the stars in in Vegas of all places." But yeah. then you can't escape the temptation of, "I could win a whole bunch of money," and that yeah. is the American kind of mentality, for better or worse. Really, it, it also shows kind of an interesting progression of Albert Brooks's characters. Uh, throughout his um, mm. best periods of film, which is that with each film, he is he has less and less control. So you know he starts out uh, as the as the director where everything that happens in the film, he is the uh, the moving force on. And then his second film, he has to deal with another moving force, but he's still in a relationship, but he is still so dominant, so pushy that he won't allow it. And yeah, here, yeah, yeah. finally, society inserts itself so uh, so dramatically into Brooks's own visions that now he th- th- that his 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 control is gone now at this point. Well, actually, yeah. and but, then death comes next, right? <laughs> well, yes, but but that's not exactly. I'm not sure that that's particularly the case. I mean, his wife lost all the money. If his wife had not lost all the money, where was the where was the real economy happening? Where was the? Where would he have been? Like where in Lost in America, before? I mean, bef- when they, they had money, where in Lost in America was America not living up to his dreams about it? Well, it, it, the the point I'm making is more that in an earlier film, uh, he wouldn't have even have given the wife the opportunity to lose the money to have her own agency like that. It's, yeah, that's it's, what it, I respond to in this right. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but that no, that point, that point I I'm I'm absolutely amazed how that because that is so cool. It's a, that is a, almost a straight line Brad upon like how mm-hmm. his attitudes of his level of control and his ability to influence the situation, where his stature is mm-hmm. is going a straight yeah. line until he's dead in his next movie, <laughs> Defending Your Life in 1991. The uh, first experience I had with Albert Brooks, and my dad and I rented the movie, and we loved the hell out of it. Just everything about it. Rip Tor- it was my first experience with Rip Torn. Um, I don't know if it, I don't think it was my first Meryl Streep movie, but it very well could have been, I think. You know that you never told me how you died? How did you die? I tripped. No. Yes. Seriously, you tripped? Yes. On what? We went to visit some friends for the weekend. Everybody wanted to go into town, but I wanted to stay at the house and go swimming. So I went outside, tripped over the chaise lounge, hit my head on the cement, and rolled into the pool. What did the East German judge give you? <laughs> so seriously, did you feel anything? Were you unconscious? Were you scared? I was pissed. You died pissed. I'm still pissed. I was a good swimmer. Well, swimming's only part of the sport. You got to negotiate the patio furniture. Because <laughs> I mean, I saw this. What night? When they come out? Ninety-one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe it was ninety-two that I finally caught up with it on video. But still, it was like I was still a fresh film lover, you could say, because. Around this time, I think it was '90, really, where I really started to like pay attention to movies. This one really 
spoke to me because I, I'm, it's, it speaks to everybody, I think. At some point in your life when you feel overwhelmed by fear and maybe that really is kind of <laughs> what holds us back from experiencing true happiness in life. And this movie examines that really beautifully and really in an interesting way of like, I get to watch a movie of my life on screen. Then I get to actually defend my actions, which is a brilliant concept. It's a really great portrayal of the afterlife. Mm, yes, he's uh, right. After uh, da- after da- after Brooks's character David Howard meets his unfortunate demise, he's uh, 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 death is is not at all what he was expecting. No, he it's, was in uh, his BMW with his brand new CD player playing Barbra Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> Those records, he loves them. He loves them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he's um uh, and he um and uh, the afterlife turns out to be um this um uh, this great resort community where. You are, um, uh, you get to go through a literal trial <laughs> a, where you go and defend your actions in life to determine if you will go to back to Earth to try again or succeed and go to the next phase of, uh, of existence. I think uh, which, it's, um, very, it's a very Buddhist kind of thinking, I think. Where it's right, like there's no hell perfect, in this. Yeah, uh, perfecting yeah. the soul kind of, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you've, and if you've conquered fear, if you lived a full life, then you get to move forward, whatever that entails. We don't really know specifically, but maybe you get to be Rip Torn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the right Rip Torn is um is his lawyer um in the film, uh, and this is a case where Brooks has a real. To me, I think he has a really great foil in how uh, he is like in so many of his other films. He's quite antsy upon the way <laughs> this uh, person is behaving towards mm-hmm. uh, helping him with his case. But uh, Torn kind of seems to me to match him in like giving him these answers that at least he doesn't have, for once, Brooks doesn't have follow-up questions. <laughs> right, right. The, the idea is that uh, in this uh, afterlife, uh, folks like Rip Torn... Uh, are are brilliant because they use huge percentages of their brains, whereas uh, people on Earth uh, they call it they call tiny brains. They only use use a little bit of their brains, which is why we have uh, so many problems. Um, a theory that was both uh, given prevalence in uh, by the aliens in Battlefield Earth, <laughs> and was the premise behind uh, Luke Besson's latest uh, foray with uh, Scarlett Johansson, Lucy. So there you uh, go. Brooks's influence is pretty extensive. Right, but but I, I love this movie too. This um, it, it, it's interesting because it's his first movie that looks like a Hollywood film, but he's still. It's still personal enough, and it's still full enough of great ideas that 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 it's it's an Albert Brooks film uh, through and through. Looking at at heaven or or at, at uh, this uh, purgatory as a uh, legal, both a legal bureaucracy and a resort where you know anything, you know, you know nothing, any everything is good. Where you know you could uh, eat as much as you want, and everything is the most delicious oh, it's ever been, like and you'll heaven. never gain weight, and. Uh, and here's a guy who's so focused on his, his own neurotics that he doesn't even know how to act in a place with no problems. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But I just... Yeah. The, the interactions here with all the, the residents, like when he goes to a restaurant, are hilarious. 
the Italian waiter, the uh, the sushi um, employees. Like I maybe some of it you can consider to be like an episodic movie where okay he goes to the stand up club and you know meets a wacky stand up guy and then you know he goes to a restaurant and this happens and that happens but it's all consistently funny and man there's there is a uh, um, a sequence in this that makes me laugh harder than most anything where they go um, let's just look at a few uh, moments from your life where you just did really stupid things. Yeah, <laughs> that whole sequence is amazing. That was like, uh, first time we saw that, I think my dad was in tears laughing. And so, I mean, it's great to have that experience, but I mean, and it's, it's great comedy, but so self-aware and insightful about human behavior and how we think that, man, this to me, like this would be a great way to spend yeah. um, the afterlife to be like, Okay, let's examine exactly what I did right, what I did wrong, and why I made that decision. Well, the thing is, it's just that that's yeah, that's yeah. what's very cool about this. <laughs> it, it, so right, that's yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah that's just. what that's what makes it the most very right. uplifting is mm-hmm. because it's a just, equitable, fair system. And and because of that, it's it's believable in that way. It's like you know if, if, you know if you look Better at than our legal system, right, right. If, <laughs> if you and, and when I say believable, of course, I mean in the context of a, of a of a fictional afterlife you know which you you can compare to uh Powell and Pressburger's uh, Stairway to Heaven mm-hmm. or uh even more recently uh The Lobster which I think uh was probably very influenced by this film but 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 I think in defending your life is special because uh, and Jim you alluded to this is is you you can look at this uh version of the afterlife that they've put forward and imagine yourself in it. And, oh, and, sure. and, and you, you, and you reflexively think about how you would do in a situation like this and how you would, uh, you would, uh, judge, judge yourself. Very much so. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And, uh, Meryl Streep is so charming. She's one, yeah, she, yeah. she's wonderful. At, th- at this point, I think she was known mostly for very heavy dramas. That's right. And yeah. so her doing light comedy at this point in her career actually was very much a, um, a departure. Right, it was like, a, the, I think the one of the first main pivots, because The Devil Wears Prada was a well, That little, was much later. Much yeah. later, oh. as, as was as was Mamma Mia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at that point, I think she had... Um, um, like her la- slate of films was definitely aimed sort of incredibly heavy side, like so Sophie's Choice. Although and I think Silkwood she and so Devil on. came out a year before this one, which was awful. Well, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure she wanted a, a do-over after yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, the um, yeah, I see what you I see what you mean, Brad, in terms of like it's um an afterlife that has these particular rules and and uh, and uh, and norms and kinds of behavior and i think it's a very nice particular kind of irony that that albert brooks in a movie where he plays a guy who's dead and is not only does not have control of the mechanics of his environment but literally has the mechanics of the environment imposed on him Mm. they are editing his life they are showing his life on a movie screen Mm -hmm. and casting judgment on him and he can't do a damn thing about it yeah right so but it's to me it's very ironic how in all that sense of his character does not have control of the situation this is his most controlled work 
yeah. the sets, the design of the afterlife world, the set of the rules and how yeah. they're followed. The costumes. Right. Yeah. No longer is Brooks beset upon by in the movie with how other pe- you know, with how other people are doing this random behavior that gets him at odds and, and trips him up. They are they are rules of the world, but these rules are crystal clear. And the world, the afterworld, I guess, is also crystal clear. The failures that happen in this kind of a world mm-hmm. are entirely his own. You know? Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, so, I mean, so, I, I, know, I know Siskel took issue with this movie because it didn't have the sort of... Uh, Kind of, uh, again, like self-deprecating, sarcastic, biting satire, maybe, of his first three movies. And then it felt like, the, the, especially the way that, you know, things play out, it is very, you know, happy, romantic, conventional movie, I guess you could say. Especially with the fact that they wind up together and that's that, you know. And, you know, it's all, but I do think that the reason they do wind up together is because he experiences fearlessness. Because he really he wants this woman and he does he will do anything to go, and he breaks the rules and I like that they make this last minute decision the ju- like some people can roll their eyes and be like sure yeah like those judges would automatically be like okay let him go let him go forward with her and you know let them live happily ever after or whatever I buy it I buy it hundred percent. Mm. Mm. But if it turns out that, well, Jim, if it turns out there was uh, Catherine Harold from Modern Romance was sitting in that. Would you buy that in that car? <laughs> and he was chasing after her and being electrocuted and still Probably trying to get the not. Now, now, right. now, 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 to to be fair, the difference is that Meryl Streep seems to like him as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he hasn't been and, and he hasn't been cru- unbelievably cruel to her. Well, so. he is he is okay. He is compatible to her because this is this is, Siskel ha- makes a point that this is. A simplified version of Brooks's persona. Brooks's character yeah. in in real life and modern romance, and even Lost America, has multiple different neuroses. The way he approaches his work and his personality and his friends are different and distinct, and they change. They they change at different moments. Whereas his character in Defending Your Life is has one characteristic. Mm-hmm. He's a fearful. He's a fearful person who has. His trepidation keeps him from doing anything that would make him happy. Um, Whereas, like, his character in Modern Romance, again, could he ever really be happy? Mm -hmm. Even if he had, even if he had, even if Meryl Streep, if we, I'll turn it the other way. If Meryl Streep's character shows up in in Modern Romance, would Mel, would he be happy? Or would he still immediately start to like question where you know where where she's going you know and then he would and be Meryl, dumped immediately. Right. Well, Meryl, but, ah, but not by Meryl Streep's character because Meryl Streep is even more simplified. She is a manic pixie dream spirit in the movie. She is a perfect person, generous to a fault, like yeah. to, um, uh, enjoys every bit of both what her own life. And her now afterlife has to offer. But that, there's is, a strategy here because all that 
uh, increases Brooks's character's insecurities, and and, and and in the because you have to find a way to introduce conflict into this place that has been specifically, aside from the trial itself, been designed to be devoid of conflict. So her perfectness is what specifically threatens him and makes and makes him fearful, and allows I think for a very interesting study of this because you know the 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 three previous movies well at least the the two before this are you know somewhat real world uh movies where um you know you have to have to deal with everyday reality yet here the fantasy elements are coming in and allow brooks to distill his ideas in a different way that, that that even though they may be more simple i think are just as effective yeah i i i i see where you're going on that and this is not it's not quite fair to just compare modern romance in and to defending your life because they're doing two distinct things and just because so, just yeah. because defending your life is more simplistic or 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 has or does not have does not introduce all these complexities and nuances that his other films did mm-hmm. does not mean that the movie should have less of value as a result and yeah i think what the movie was doing very effectively is by making the world the afterworld so like as you were saying it's a fair world it's a just world his real uh, brooks's character's realization of what his of what his failing is, of what his his problem with himself is, could not make could not have happened in the real world with all of its multiple contradictions and variety and and lack of a big standard for you to like make your judgment. But here, mm-hmm. you literally are able to make this judgment. You literally have a person who doesn't have flaws that his character could harp on. So literally, honestly, it's it, you can. Maybe this is an uncharitable way of saying it, but I actually put this as a credit to Brooks. He was able to make a world that had this just fair rules, and by giving the by giving the like his romantic interests such an making it so idealized, it's a narcissist facing himself mm-hmm. and realizing there is actually nothing where I can point to the other guy. And goes no, no, you're the puppet. You're the <laughs> puppet. Yeah, it's only you that's the problem. And oh, and when you when you realize that, and you just go for it, for your you know, go for it because you realize the value of that person, and that's and you get and literally you get out of your own way. Yeah, for sure. And I I, I don't know where I heard this, but I, I heard that sometimes we are attracted to qualities that we wish we had, and to some degree, I think that's his character. It's like he sees her like rescuing her fam her own family out of a burning house, and just goes. You know, if I had a scene like that in my life today, I would feel very differently about myself. Right. Instead of his previous life where he was running away from lions and things. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the yeah. That past life pavilion sequence is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I, and uh, that, that kind of world. I mean, what do, you, what do you think about his creation of that particular world? To me, it's like, like it's with everybody wearing robes and in this resort, it's like as if it looks like a cult took over Epcot Center to me. You know, I want I want to give. I don't mind that. Yeah. So much. No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, uh, but I'm saying, what what makes you? What impressions do you guys have about why he decides to show it like that? Like a kind of a timeshare condominium right. for the the next uh, the next the property. I, I want to give Brooks a lot of credit as a filmmaker uh, here because. 
we won't, I won't really have a chance to do it as our discussion continues. But 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 here and in, you you see him doing a lot with a little. He doesn't have a special effects budget. He's not going to be able to create a a science fiction environment around this afterlife. So he does what uh, what Godard did uh, with Alphaville is take a normal everyday uh, scenery and, uh, and environments and shoot it as if it were uh, a, a fantasy. And, and even though he's not a director that ca- that calls a lot of attention to himself, uh, this, th- this took quite some skill because at no time watching this film was I'm like, was I like, no, I'm not buying this. I bought it. <laughs> yes, that's yes. It, it's a credit, yeah, to the set design, the, um, the filmmaking of like even like the cinemato- cinematography. And of the writing that manages to be a world successful world building or fantasy fable building exercise, you you like the rules that this world has. I mean, to me, are you can get very taken by this, and you're like, okay, let's follow these. Let's see how this thing plays out. Let's see how this world he inhabits in. Um, it gets a it get like you had said earlier. Like it has a validity to it. That you that you want that you want to believe, and you're willing to believe out, out for the out of the film. He makes he makes that compelling, and he actually makes this compelling through like through director through directorial techniques, and you know, oh, yeah. like, and a successful world building, you know, of a of a character who has no world building agency. Again, a real I'm really taken I'm really taken by that kind of that kind of ironic. Uh, like, uh, look at that. That um, you know, it's like Albert Brooks making a science fiction movie uh, or yes. science fiction fantasy, and he's never done that before. Or and after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How cool would it have been if George Kennedy showed up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, you know nothing. So, uh, somewhere. Well, speaking on you know nothing. That also is like a great line. What, that's my favorite line in Defending Your Life is when they uh, when um, Rip Torn says, um, I, "I could tell you where I was." But you wouldn't understand it, and 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 Brooks just, of course, spends a whole lot of time going, "Oh no, come on, come on, look, like you, like what do you take me for?" And then like says, "Well, I was modifying on the purple phase," and like, cut to Brooks, I don't understand. <laughs> I think he says that uh, I was lost at the inner circle of thought. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and and, and um, yeah, and so I mean, to me, I kind of think this is his Brooks's magnum opus on directing, like, like to me for sure. Yeah, yeah I would yeah, say so. Yeah, I'm. To me, I kind of think, and I, I really want to run this question by you guys, is like my, because my impression of him is that he's a comedic presence. He, he has a certain source of his comedy that he wants to bring out. But I'm not sure if movies are exactly that, you know. I think part of the reason that his movies don't end that really successfully is because he has certain things he wants to express, but he doesn't want to make a whole overarching story about it. You I know? think that if there's one comedian out there who should have a podcast... It would be Albert Brooks. Huzzah. And right. Unfortunately, I don't think he'll. I don't think he embraces technology. Uh, and I mean, he's he's made like one appearance on a podcast, and that was with Adam Carolla, and they really didn't talk too much about the films, which disappointed me. I mean, they talk about life in general and mm-hmm. topics going on, uh, you know, contemporarily at the time. But um, I would I would value more commentary from him about. What, what it was like working on these films or just like his own perspectives on things and that's why it's like 
number one on my my especially after watching a bunch of Albert Brooks movies, I'm reading his book next. Because I oh, think okay. I would love to oh, what's, read. What's this book? Yeah, called? what's this book about? It's, it's twenty. It's like a again science fiction hmm. kind of a novel. Uh, oh, about, he wrote about a fiction the, work about okay. the future. I think it's called twenty thirty six or something like that. Maybe uh, okay, maybe it's a different year, but um, it's just about like what happens when the elderly can't die anymore. Okay. Hmm. I think there's a lot more to it. And I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a lot more political and sociological commentary going on, but I hear it's great. I just never got around to it, and I want to now more than ever because I'm like, I'm itching for new Albert Brooks, and that's the only way I can get it is yeah. really through book. Right, yeah. be- because mm. then something happened uh, on the film front for Albert Brooks as we... More or uh, less. We, he, he goes, yeah. like, as, as I've kind of noticed, like, through our, like, the Directors Club podcast we've been able to do so far, like, there seems to, like, it, it's cool how they counter like from one kind of, especially on scope, you get like, and Brooks is no exception because he goes on this epic scope of like literally saying, what's the whole meaning of life and um, and what's this um uh, like what's this whole global questions on the afterlife to go way way intimate I'm on a sense uh, with his next movie Mother in uh, 1990 uh, in 1996. Q Danzig song here. Mother. Ah yes. Not I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help. Not, not, not Pink Floyd. See, I'm trying to control <laughs> the podcast like Albert Brooks would. <laughs> Ooh, meta. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I like Mother. I don't love it. It's definitely like I would say the the beginning of the downfall for Albert Brooks because like his next three movies aren't very strong, especially in comparison to his others. Uh, but again, it's like I see my own mother in this movie. I I mean, my my own mother would be the type to like keep um, old food in the freezer or make comments about how this uh, peanut butter is too expensive when we go grocery shopping. Um, Just, again, like, she's a loving control freak. (laughs) And I mean that in the most, you know, loving way possible. Uh, And I feel like he's examining the relationship between mother and son in this in a very Albert Brooks fashion, and I enjoy it. I don't think it's deep. I don't think it's really, like... The, the one that sticks with me on like a philosophical level that makes me think about my own life necessarily. I'm going to give you some cheese. That's a lot of cheese. Got it in hunks. Mother, look, look at the date. It's mm-hmm. three years old. Well, it's been in the freezer. Yeah, but how cheap was it that you wanted to buy this much of it? I mean, this is wonderful cheese. It comes from Switzerland. Very hard to get. How could it be hard to get? It's all here. Because at, in the, at the very end, it's again, it's kind of wrapped up in a nice, neatly bow, little bow where they're like, oh, we actually do have a lot in common, and we should like each other more, and we shouldn't bicker so much, and it's all, you know, love and sunshine at the very end of the movie. And But it's also related on the creative process. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What, the because they're both writers. Yeah. They're, they're, and, and like, um, I think a lot of um, the mother situation, a lot of that stemmed from her inability to create. To yeah, able, yeah. And so even even when he comes to, like, which actually honestly makes me want to um, look into more history of the Einstein family. Mm. And, and, See and because this is a reflective... I mean, it, not, of course, not everything needs to be Freudian. No, like no, that, no. But, 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 um, but considering, like, a creator and what he's trying to impose upon people with his creation, like, that seems to be something that's Brooks's bag, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. maybe, like, by having, like, showing by 
now making a story of the most intimate scope, like like a prodigal son almost. <laughs> Maybe maybe he's making some sort of maybe there's some familiar stuff coming out of that. But it makes yeah. me it's curious about that at any rate. Yeah, Brooks kind of loses me here mostly because while I could buy everything that happens in the, in the, the defending your life afterlife, I could not buy this hackneyed idea of what Albert Brooks's character, uh, uh, his plan to understand his failure of his relationships with women by uh, exploring his relationship with his mother by moving back in, basically imposing himself uh, back I in, I agree. Putting himself in his old room, making sure his room looks exactly like it did, uh, he did as a kid, and, and eventually, I, I, I just lose the psychology of it. I'm just like, how exactly is this doing anything you are saying you want this to do? It's like he's self-imposing the reincarnation of his character from defending your <laughs> there life. There you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> What if you get to reincarnate in the exact same place? <laughs> I agree. I don't buy the initial concept, but I like I like their chemistry together. I do I, like Debbie Reynolds and Albert Brooks as a team in this movie. There's there's some there's some nice uh, mothers say the darndest things type yeah. stuff going on here. I'm a and for and that I, stuff. I do say there there is one scene I found very charming, uh, which is when he discovers. Uh, that his mother uh, has a name for the freezer burn on the sherbet uh, yeah, or on the ice that, cream. That's yeah, great moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and a, and a focus on naming things akin to the nest egg sequence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Just get, give, giving giving out, out giving stuff a name, you know. Um, yeah, De- uh, Debbie's um, uh, uh, quite a bit of a raconteur, tour. You know, she's like um, like quite you know she's. Quite game in in matching um uh, in matching Brooks in terms of like you know that his issues and her issues are kind of put on a somewhat like kind of yeah. equal plane on it you know actually I would even say would you say that like this is that it's more equal than say the relationship he has of Catherine Harold in in um a modern romance or is it still like Brooks go is Brooks show and then the and the mother is like a side character in his own drama. Well, no, he actually respects his mother. Yeah. <laughs> so he yeah. respects something. That's yeah. kind of a first. I don't yeah, mean... I think he. I think he more or less respects her, but just questions some of her beliefs and ideas. And certainly, like I think we just we have a tendency as you know uh, sons and daughters to maybe um, critique our parents because we're critiquing ourselves in some ways. Yes, you know? very, very and, true. Very great and, point, man. And again, it's like he's got that self-awareness, and I'm sure that at some point in his life, he had tension with a parent and maybe tried to examine it in this movie. It's just that it's I, I, I also don't buy the initial premise, but then again, I just like the scenes they have together of simply like just doing things or, um, I mean, I don't, I don't really care for the brother character in this movie. Sort of like. Oh, we gotta have a we gotta have an opposite, right? And just have him show up to say, "What are you doing?" What it becomes sitcommy at right. that point. And I think because he doesn't want to make, he, he you know he 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 has sympathy uh, for Debbie Reynolds' character, and I I think yeah. wants to make the mother 
likable, even though she has her own eccentricities, that he takes kind of the negativity that, you know, kind of a, a Hollywood script would require and enforces that uh, on, on the brother character. Here, I want to run a crazy theory by you guys. Oh, boy. What would you're, you? You're the master at this album. <laughs> Thank you. I I um uh, I don't try. It just happens <laughs> accidentally, and and that's is the case here. It just occurs to me. What would you think of the idea that it, maybe if if Brooks had made this movie, um, 15 years earlier, hmm. he would play the Rob Morrow character about a guy being incredibly more angry that his uh, his ne'er do well brother is trying to do this scheme of living with his mother. What would you think of that? Well, on the one hand, it probably would be funnier. On the other yeah. hand, it would probably be quite a bit more disturbing. <laughs> well, yes, but but this is a person who is not shied away from like disturbing, right, from right. disturbing behavior. I mean, I'd pre- I, again, I'd prefer disturbing uh, Brooks to what I think starts here is a more Hollywood-friendly, uh, conventional Albert Brooks. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. conventional. I would say. I mean, it's kind of predictable to have this kind of uh, dynamic and certainly the the way things play out is very predictable um and then you know eventually he tackles something that i felt like man everybody's done this at this point robert altman and david mamet like just let's let's make fun of hollywood and how movies are made and things like that so it does feel like he's gone down less interesting territory after peaking, essentially, I think, with Lost in America and Defending Your Life. Yeah, well, one thing that, yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, sometimes, like, certain films, like, you just, like, quote-unquote, blow a gasket, and that, like, your ambitions and your attempts to make, like, statements have have pushed you as a creator to like the, to, like, the limit, and you go, hey, what's left? You know, what's next? What's the, what can I do, what can I do afterwards, you mm. know? I mean, we look at, we look over, uh, over the course of this podcast at where, like, his career has gone and how he's, how he's viewed, like, his own situation. Like, he literally reduces himself in a way in Mother to, like, that of a little kid who's, like, one step away from uh, the Mother issue shown in, um... Uh, the Nicholas Winding Refn film, Only God Forgives, you know. He's one step up to doing that, you know what I mean? It's creepy nostalgia for, for his character. Yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. And, and in a way, though, his next, his next film may actually be, ironically, a big meta concern about where are you going to find inspiration next? Why don't you make a movie about where you find inspiration? And that was the subject of his um, uh, uh, movie uh, uh, Muse in uh, 1999, yeah. where um, where his um, his character is a uh, a struggling a, a struggling uh, screenwriter who's trying to uh, get ideas, and he's about to like be let go by his studio. And his uh, friend uh, uh, who Jeff Bridges, who just had an Oscar, tell him about a Muse who um, can go give him these inspirations to go and become successful. He'll be able to, like, fulfill his creative dreams. But she is one incredibly high-maintenance deity. (laughs) I kind of wish Jeff Bridges would have been the muse, because I would buy that a little bit more. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> because I love Jeff Bridges, and I think mm-hmm. that he is kind of an all-around inspirational figure. I mean, not the character he plays in this movie, but him as a person is just kind of like, I don't know, I see him as the dude. And for me, like, the dude is kind of an inspirational figure. In, but, right. in theory, and, right? And, Isn't that the scuttlebutt, though, that, like, his ki- that he, in real life... Um, Bridges is the dude. It has that kind yeah. of dude attitude. And, yeah, and, and before much. Lebowski, I know we're getting a little off topic here, but before Lebowski, he pretty much specialized in Michael Douglas type roles. Yeah, yeah. And, and, right. and we were like, oh, he's the he's this this kind of uh, character. Except for fearless. The, like, except for, right, right, right. But then, then yeah, then then once he was once we saw the dude, we could never unsee it. And this this is the nineteen ninety nine film, and and Lebowski was nineteen ninety eight. So this would have been right. Just about immediately afterwards, much, and look, yeah. there, there, there's not much I can find to recommend in this film. I think it's Brooks's worst film. Agreed. Uh, and uh, but, but the, the but Jeff Bridges' uh, small role uh, is is actually some of the of better the better scenes on it. Yeah, you know Sharon Stone, who who plays the muse, is you know just very predictable. This was kind of at the height of her trying to be uh, a more respected actress after uh, mm. Casino. And uh, and I have to be honest, I'm not a fan of Andy McDowell, so that didn't help uh, much for my enjoyment. But, I like but, her in two movies, Sex, Lies, and Videotape <laughs> and Groundhog Day. I like, I like both those movies, but I think they, they both work uh, in spite of yeah, her, yeah, not yeah, yeah. because of hmm. her. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Andy McDowell does not uh, satisfy you in the movie as the long-suffering wife of Albert Brooks. Well, who would have guessed that who she could play a long-suffering wife of the, the cookies? Don't, like, I don't care <laughs> yeah. about her cookies. This is a movie that needed a muse and didn't get one, and it, it's really ironic. <laughs> it's really ironic that Rob Reiner has a cameo in it because the same damn thing happened to Rob Reiner, which is after a series of incredibly great films. All of a sudden, he can't even make a decent one. No, no, no. You, you, you gotta, you gotta take that. Ba- you gotta take that back a little bit. Uh, but because for as bad as Muse is, it's no North, dude. <laughs> North is it, the worst. Fair enough. Yeah. It would be my top ten. Like, yeah. to, to get the right to get the to literally get the title of a Rob Dreamer book about <laughs> uh, about you know <laughs> on bad on bad uh, one I of his finest bad one of the right. finest things he's ever written is a bad review of. Uh, of North, mm-hmm. um, it it is mildly amusing that when he does appear in in Muse, all the he, director cameos are kind of funny. Yeah, yeah Scorsese uh, shows yeah, up. Scorsese, yeah. like, mm-hmm. like Taxi Driver too. Right, yeah. James Cameron after making Titanic, he's incredibly uh, uh, reluctant to be near the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were those were charming. Yeah. Um, and then I I really like this scene because the scene uh, the scene is they're visiting an aquarium. And Rob Reiner's with his family, and he he greets he greets um uh, the muse um, and um and as he's greeting her, Brooks is watching from a distance as he slips her a uh, a box of Tiffany jewelry, which is like, I think probably funnier than any other thing in the movie. The thought that Rob Reiner wanders around aquariums with thousands of dollars of jewelry <laughs> is a wonderfully wonderful concept that I really, really hope was true for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> you never know when you're going to run into a well, Hollywood Well, look, look at kind of the where this movie decides to go with this. I mean, again, we saw in, in the fantasy of, of 
defending your life, how uh, creative every step could be. And here, the best thing he could come up with, or the thing he comes up with, is the is just the idea that uh, this muse requires uh, payment and pampering and to be treated and paid for and money and gifts and whatnot uh, to She's the extent the that it, it drives heart. him to madness. But this is this is not just like a character trait. This is becomes the central conceit of the movie to where we just see this over and over again that he's got to that the, the, he's got to appease the muse with gifts and whatnot and 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 it may or may not help and it's like really is this the most interesting thing you could think of about a potent, about a muse uh-huh it's yeah it's kind of dispiriting that it's the most uh impressive thing that Brooks could think of for the muse but it is re- I do find it really interesting uh, in how it has a its attitude on uh, Hollywood especially a certain aspect of Hollywood something hmm. that like something like um, that I've noticed about Hollywood that you guys have you guys have noticed I have a theory about it and I think this theory actually might enhance this view of the muse make it look a little darker, a little <gasps> more, a little more dangerous and edgy. Go for like, it. Unlike it might might not have lost the edge. Okay. Ooh. Now you guys have all heard, and and uh, as as all of you in the listening audience of the hooker with the heart of gold, right? Mm. And and I was always curious about that because it is obviously such a huge cliche. It happens over and over and over again, and yet you don't really do that with other like professions you don't really have the drug dealer of the heart of gold you know or the or the um uh or the orthodontist who only means well for you right so (laughs) why does why is it this why is it that right and my theory on that is my theory on that is that hollywood movies are sponsored by and 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 promoted and funded by hollywood studio executives and the movies that get made and the characters that get presented are are characters that those execs find approval. And to my theory is that that character, that trope shows up because almost every one of these executives or a, or a huge or a hell of a lot of them are subject to this whole idea that no, no, the woman that they're sleeping with, she's not sleeping with you because you're paying her thousands of dollars. She really cares about you. So when you see a script that literally shows somebody like that, well, yeah, that's right. That's exactly the relationship that Bambi with an eye has with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's my theory on that. And, and think about Muse with that in mind. Think about what it means in Hollywood that the idea that creative inspiration has to come from Effect a whore. A Whoa, complete, a complete, a complete sugar. Uh, someone who's looking for a sugar daddy who you pay your own way. Ugh. Wow! Right? Like, look at that. Bit and think about the movie with that in mind. That that's how. That that's literally what. Pe- that's literally what Hollywood people might feel. Like. I think I'll and I'll, it, I'll take the David Mamet approach to. Okay, right? Satire. Doesn't that make David Mamet look kind like, of like Pollyanna? Yeah, you, yeah, and, but it's like he's, he just sees it as a big con game. Right. That's but that's, that's how he sees yeah. a lot of his movies, yeah. essentially. But doesn't that give a little bit more of an edge to, like, for example, the sequence where where Brooks agonizes over buying this Tiffany thing, this mm-hmm. Tiffany thing, and then, then, and then she gets it and just throws it into a pile <laughs> of junk to, <laughs> of, of, right. of similar 
while I think your theory makes the film more interesting than it actually is, I still don't think it helps with the repetition. Because the you know you know even if we were to grant and I I I, I I I like the creativity of where you went with that I'm not sure that's where Brooks was going with that but 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 even barring that you know a a a, a film needs to pace needs to also it needs to be funny. You yeah, it's, know, not, it's not very yeah. funny, and who cares about Andy McDowell's cookies? Right, there's too a lot to there's way too much cookies in this film. Yeah, it's <laughs> um yeah I I agree with you on that. Like there's not a there's not a pivot. Like look at something like what he was doing with real life, which is full of pivots, just like like yeah, 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 like yeah. real life. There's so many unexpected unexpected directions, and even even something in defending your life, like the ways the rules manifest itself, and even that last minute rug pull of like. Hey, you can even be judged by what you're doing in the afterlife. That's a pivot, and and it, there not only is there no pivot, but like I think the last twenty minutes of the movie are like completely arbitrary, right? I think it was something where like he gets the gig and then it doesn't get the gig and then he gets the gig again, and none of it has anything to do with his character or mm-hmm. or or even what even what the or even what happens with like in events. It just he gets a call, it's like oh no, now you got it. The end. <laughs> Pretty much. Right? And so, yeah, that, right. That's, Brad, like, you, that varying, yes, that, that lack of variance just, just kills momentum in the movie. It just, yeah, as, as things goes on, you're just like, want something new. You want some different example of it. But, like, and, and Sharon Stone's portrayal is, is, is this, like, honestly, it's like, it, maybe I, I, want, I wonder, I compare it with, like, the Sarah Jessica Parker from L.A. Story in the sense of, like, <laughs> the, the, the young sprite, you know, which is the idealized kind of... Uh, or she's pers- just playing herself. <laughs> right. mm, that I don't actually, know that for she's sure. A, a, Sharon Stone actually is, like, a um, Mensa, uh, like, a Mensa uh, member. Who actually, like, I think her IQ is something like 180, 190. Now, you may explain, well, why, how did I explain Catwoman? But the thing is, is... Just because you can, you can't intellectualize yourself to be a good actress. Mm. You know what I mean? When, and 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 to be fair, is anybody aside from maybe Jeff Bridges really putting in a good right. performance? And, uh, in, this in, really in is music? this isn't That's Sharon, not really a good direction of performance. This isn't song. Sharon Stone's fault. Uh, th- this this would have been just as problematic with a more engaging actor. There 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 there's a a a, a basic script problem here. It's just not a very good one. No, it's not. Let's move on. (laughs) Because this next one is interesting. Yeah. You know, post 9-11, I mean, there was like just a certain tension, unfortunately. It is right. His next film is, in fact, like you can't, like it works on a very tense subject. It's it's looking for comedy in the Muslim world in uh, in, uh, 2005. Um, uh, uh, cue mother on the soundtrack. Um, uh, the um, it's and it it features like it features Brooks as a a, a comedian who goes to as Albert Brooks as once Albert, again. Yeah, yeah. He's, he but goes possibly to, a different Albert Brooks than the one in real life. Yeah, and it's and and the premise of it is actually I'm really and I agree, Jim. It's like really really fascinating. It, yeah. it he it's goes more and, intriguing than his last two movies in he, terms of setting up. Right. He he's a comedian who goes towards India, and then. And like while attempting to try his comedic stylings, just ends up causing some giant international incident. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, he is asked by uh, the U.S. government, uh, 
with uh, represented by Fred Thompson, both a character actor and a uh, former U.S. senator, uh, to uh, to do this outreach to find out what uh, what makes uh, Muslims laugh. We're looking for an American comedian, and since you're here doing the cartoon, we thought we would mention it. See if you're interested. I, I don't I don't think I'm interested in doing a sitcom. It's a very funny idea. We even have a title. Hadal Yehudi Tefik. What does that mean? Well, roughly, that darn Jew. <laughs> I, I don't want to get into television at this time in my life. A couple interesting decisions are made. One is which uh, to choose India as the location, which on a, on a film level is perfectly understandable. It's India is A, beautiful, and B, open to Western filmmaking, which uh, a, a, a lot of Muslim countries would not be. Right. Um, but uh, then the second decision uh, that they make, which is very perplexing, is that uh, he decides basically that the, the, the comedian Albert Brooks uh, in this film is not a very good comedian, and, and he pretty much fails at eliciting laughter, which, which uh, I'm not sure it's even clear on whether it's a cultural thing or whether he's just not funny because he goes through some bits from Albert Brooks's old uh, stand-up stand days. Yeah, the improv with, right, ventriloquist. Right, yeah. which, which apparently worked back then, and he brings them into this setting and, and watches the bits bomb. Yeah. Which, which 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 is a is strange that decision. Can't doesn't translate to other mm -hmm. cultures sometimes. Right. Well, well, well. He's saying that, but it also I think bombs to us. I mean, I don't know. I didn't find what him the, funny in his stand-up bits, even though certainly the the whole idea of the the fake the the improv scene where yeah. uh, is is funny in concept, but not in execution. Yeah, I would say so, and I think that. I mean, when I saw this movie, of course, I was like, oh, great, a new Albert Brooks movie. I've been dying for one because he does take a long time mm -hmm. in between movies. And I love the concept, and I do think it has some very interesting moments of insight. But overall, I kind of struggle just a little bit with, you know, uh, certainly this, some like the interaction he has with, the, with his assistant. Right. I mean, and mm -hmm. she, she. It almost feels like again the Woody Allen thing kind of plays, in, <laughs> like it's the younger, you know, girl kind of eventually being romantically interested in him. If I recall, I didn't get a time to get. Right. A chance I, to I, I don't it, think but... that actually happens. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I love you know Albert Brooks as a comedic persona. I actually think his stand-up in this is kind of funny. Like the improv bit kind of kills me. I love mm. the I love the improv <laughs> bit, um, and I like that like the moment of intimacy where he's you know i guess um in afghanistan and with the guys around the camp oh, pakistan 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 yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and he um he actually is a hit and with with the, with, the, with the smaller crowd like it's more right. intimate it's just once like he realizes him. they're not going to kill him right this is right original uh, thought we, 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 and, and the other thing about choosing india as as a location is that india is not a majority muslim country it's a majority, oh, right, majority right. Indian yeah, country. that's a good point yeah. too mm -hmm. it shows a little bit of our cultural ignorance yeah. to some degree what what is it about the middle east where comics comedy goes to die I mean, I so know. many right because I mean, so many like they don't seem full like, of humor there. like like Ishtar oh. is such a such a <laughs> horrible. But it is written by Elaine May, who was one of the funniest people uh, alive, with, especially with her duets with it's kind of Mike funny. Nichols. It's kind of funny. 
kind but, of funny. Okay, but but <laughs> never. But it doesn't rise to the level of of of, of Mays of like of no, Mays' no, no, best no, no, work, no, no. you know. <laughs> and so I mean, I don't I don't know what. Uh, yeah, I don't really know how how why it didn't quite work in that context, and why Brooks makes that explicit decision to go and not have the crowd laugh at his own bits. Yeah. What kind of self-reflexiveness is going on there, right? Like, I mean, are mm-hmm. you, I mean, it does, I mean, it, I, maybe if it was more, maybe if it played up more of the Indian culture, then it would be more of a reflection on him, the ultimate sense of like, what am, where am I going? Is Why should it, I be um, imposing my it, brand of humor on this culture? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile, like, just like the Muse and its repeated comic bits uh, here, uh, the 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 repeated comic bit is this the idea he has to write a 500 page report, and that all he cares right, about yeah. is this is getting enough material to fi- to fill this report, and how is he going to do it, and uh, and yeah, you know, there's only so much mileage you can get on that kind of thing. Yeah, wow. I mean, what a career that had started off with documentaries ends in bureaucracy. At least, bit. For his, at least for his film. At least for his film. And again, uh, another tidy yeah. ending, if I recall, just kind of like perhaps, oh, a, yeah. perhaps a fifty-page report now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like you know, it's like I mean, it seems that like the, it seems that when we look over his like works, it's like he has this particular perspective that he wants to express, and sometimes it manages to make it to movie form, and sometimes sometimes it doesn't, and, and like at least for me, for say Lost in America, it gets halfway or or part yeah. way, or part way there, and mm-hmm. then. Then he's he's kind of done and let's okay we made our message let's let's go home and I guess like Muslim world like okay let's go home you know pretty he is, much he is the he, honestly he is the comedian with the ruby red slippers that like okay we're <laughs> in our, we've created our fantasy world and now let's go home now well, let's go. I, again <laughs> I, I think the pivot may have may just be Hollywood because if his first three films even though they're they're Hollywood films look and feel like independent films. Then Defending Your Life does look and feel like a Hollywood film, but it's so full of ideas, so full of everything done right. Um, And then after that... It seems it seems like product. Yeah, and and look looking for comedy in the Muslim world. I'll give it credit in that it is less obvious than the other two correct he's he, he he it sounds like there was an idea somewhere at the script level which is worth exploring but so, you know it just just something happened where he didn't get to explore it whatever hmm. idea whatever the potential there is and i think there could have been especially coming so soon after uh 9-11 and this need to kind of bring the world together and understand uh cultural differences um you know i mean may- maybe the good intentions themselves are the problems maybe albert brooks just doesn't work well with good intentions <laughs> <laughs> i had a bomb on my father i pretty much never lied to him. You never lied to your father? Would you like me to show you at least 500 examples? I said pretty much never lied. I didn't say I never, ever lied. You have to lie sometimes in an emergency. It doesn't mean that the bond is affected. If you've got the bond, the bond's always there. And if you have to lie occasionally, you're not gonna interfere with the bond. You know, sometimes in the middle of a lie, I found that the bond would kick in, maybe squeeze a little truth out. Wrap it up. 
I'm through. I think we need a more nasty Albert Brooks. Yeah. Some, some yeah. But then again, we have like our Louis C.K.'s mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's comedy out there. Maybe even, you know, something like what Aziz Ansari is doing with Master of None on Netflix. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I just see, you know, Albert Brooks's fingerprints, <laughs> you know, literally on some of these other comedy TV shows that are out now mm-hmm. that it's like, maybe we have our, maybe if, it, maybe if it's a copy of a copy of a copy of Albert Brooks, it's still, you know, yeah. it's still there, but I want, I do want something again, more like, um, uh, a lost America, real life again from, mm-hmm. from Albert Brooks. Yeah, I think his like I mean, I think his legacy lives on with all those comedians because because I think he was he's was pretty consistent on especially in his early films on having this perspective in terms yeah. of like making being aware of your kind of own self narcissism of how you get in your own way and how that causes frustrations on even the most mundane activities and stuff from like the most existential questions of defending your life to the most intimate situations of like in modern romance and in and in, and like in the family and mother you know yeah, sure. like that the idea of like awareness of the ironies of how of your own you know your own psychology getting in the way yeah. i think that's a specific legacy that he's done that like a whole branch of comedy has him to honor for, if not inventing, actually promoting. Yeah, yeah don't yeah, take the, yourself too seriously, mm-hmm. really. It's, I, it's like, maybe that's a simplistic way to just, you know, nail down his brand of humor. But at the same time, like, I do think what Steve Martin accomplished with L.A. Story and what Albert Brooks has accomplished with his first four movies best mirror, at least my love of comedy and also self-reflection yeah and then and then it, and then this this to go points out to like something that he's also intrinsically able to do just so well is he's just such a great writer of 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 just dialogue. incredibly clever dialogue and incredibly clever he's he i mean he's nothing less than a fountain of creativity in terms of the things that he just the inadvertent commentary that he says which like They've even even on like his various Simpsons appearances, even though like he is impro- is known for like improving most of his lines on them, mm-hmm. for them, you know, and that leads me like to kind of to just kind of like so, like sum up one of the attitudes that makes him great. I want to run a question by you guys as to like what would be like your favorite quote or scene <laughs> from what uh, Brooks has done in his movie. It's really hard to choose just one. For uh, sure, and uh, so you don't have to. <laughs> oh, good. I, I've got one though because okay. this is uh, probably. I, I think uh, I saw Modern Romance uh, when I was a kid and probably too young to understand it. Okay, but one line always stuck out at me and, and made me laugh. It's where he goes. Uh, uh, he's breaking up with with his girlfriend and doing uh, bending over backwards to try to figure out how to do it. So finally says, uh, have you heard of the no-win situation? You, you've never heard of it? It's like, like Vietnam and this. delivery of it is different. I love his delivery. Like right, matter, yeah, obviously very, I can't do it justice. Yeah, it's matter-of-factly. Yeah, it's like right. Vietnam, this. Right. <laughs> But uh, I also want to quote from uh, one of his Saturday Night Live shorts because it, oh, sure, this is do. probably an old, an old joke, but it, it, it really works. It was in his uh, – uh, he, he was uh, promoting a fake show called uh, Medical Season, and he goes uh, – uh, they're discussing, uh, two doctors are discussing death, and, and one doctor says, well, you know, I – 
you, you might die within the year. You don't know. And the, the other one says, uh, I'm not going to die. I'm not dying. And he says, well, you know, you, you could die driving home in your car today. And so he says, I'm not going home. oh yeah jim do you uh well there's there's too many okay i really love and it almost kind of sums up part of my own personal philosophy but in defending your life when it gets kind of serious for a moment with rip torn kind of delivering a little bit of a monologue and he says um fear is like a giant fog it sits on your brain and blocks everything real feelings true happiness real joy they can't get through that fog, but you lift it, buddy, and you're in for the ride of your life. Ah, in a way nice. that, in a way that Rip Torn can only deliver that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, like, geez, the whole nest egg moment yes. in the in the camper is perfect. Yeah. And he's so angry. Yeah. The actual literal words are unacceptable <laughs> to him. <laughs> what a wonder! Yeah, totally wonderful. Yeah. Like, uh, like in my ca- in my case, I would get, I would pass along two two and a half. One uh, the the the, ru- the runner up for me is a line in, in modern romance where he's still complaining to Bruno Kirby's assistant director character upon like what am I gonna do after the breakup? He says, "L.A. is a town of like there's 10 million people. There's got to be a perfect person in there somewhere." <laughs> <laughs> My ultimate favorite, uh, Jim, you actually referenced this earlier in the podcast when he um, is talking to a psychiatrist in um, a psychologist in uh, real life. And the psychologist is an African American, and then oh, he just—it's a whole sustained sequence where he's just trying to say, "Well, you know, you—you you are in Phoenix, and Phoenix, yeah. and and the and the psychologist just like is staring more and more aghast, and says, he says, you know, you, I have never seen a white man be so <laughs> afraid of a black man as you.' <laughs> and then there's a, a, a wonderful detail that happened at the Muse I found really remarkable because the, the, the point of uh, the, the premise is that he needs to find a script and he makes a comedy which involving Jim Carrey which of course is 95% of the way of making a success anyway yep. Jim Carrey likes it right but he's trying to do a pitch and he has a pitch at the aquarium it's like oh, wait a minute look at the aquarium Hey, I know. Let's movie movie about the aquarium where the fish are sick, and he's pitching it to his agent. He says, "Yeah, the fish are sick. They're they're lying on their side, and they have slings on their fins, and then the fish start dying, and uh, and like yeah, and and what are you gonna do now in this aquarium that makes this aquarium a success?" And his agent loves it, and I'm thinking, "Wow, I can't believe that in like a." Uh, like in uh, in this movie, he's pitched uh, Finding Dory. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. yeah. Ace Ventura meets Finding Dory. Yeah, so... Uh, I actually really enjoyed the uh, Netflix promo he did uh, when, for a brief time, all his films were available Netflix streaming. And he does a little introductory promo, and he goes like, Hi, I'm Albert Brooks. You probably know me as Marlon from Finding Nemo yeah. and Finding Dory, but right. I used to direct movies, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and he's a great he's he's a great actor. I mean, uh, broadcast news is one of my favorite performances from any supporting er, uh, actor, and uh, he showed up in um, Sidney Lumet film called Critical Care. Hmm. He's like the only thing really good about that movie, and he's like unrecognizable. Hmm. Obviously, Drive. Yeah, playing yeah. a playing a villain. Who would yeah, have seen that coming? Right, yeah. but but his his disdain. Upon the people he has to work with, yeah. <laughs> really, really shines through on that, and, right. and it lends and his and his attitude. I'm, I'm, and it was such a weird compliment to his characters that are so antsy about trivialities that he's a guy who can like. 
cut a dude's arm open and hold it as it bleeds all over him and go, hey, man, it's all right. It's, it's all right. It's done. It's yeah. done. It's done. Yeah. It's all right. Just uh, take it easy. It's all right. Yeah, I, wanted, like, I wanted to see more of that Albert Brooks, actually. I, I, I wouldn't mind if he acted in more dramatic roles. I mean, he, and he has. Like most he, violent year. That's right. Yeah. He's, he's, he plays quite well on, in that film. So. Right. And and he's he was really great in this in his appearances on The Simpsons as well. Oh, a God, relationship yes. which looks like it can continue. So, so and and uh, when did the book come out, Jim? The, his book. Oh, it seems like a few years ago now. And okay. I just uh, I know it made the bestseller list, and I know I heard about it, but it wasn't until I was like uh, listening to um, that Adam Carolla podcast he did where they talk about it. I'm just like, why didn't I ever get around to reading that? Since I love this guy so much, so I'm gonna just check it out at ASAP and report back. Because I'll be back soon enough. Ah, and if I read it in time, I'll let you know. Awesome. Sweet. And yes, and, and so, I mean, on that note, actually, we'd like to uh, thank you guys out for listening uh, to the Director's Club podcast on our exploration of, of Albert Brooks. Um, um, it was really uh, fun and fascinating to check a guy whose, like, comedic legacy has, um, uh, has uh, transcended uh, his film output. At least I, I believe so. Um, uh, feel free to like run comments and suggestions and, and your thoughts over on our um, uh, Facebook page, Directors Club Podcast. We are can be found on iTunes at uh, Directors Club Podcast and uh, via email at uh, Directors Club uh, Podcast at gmail dot com. And uh, Jim, yeah. where can we where can we hear and see from you next? You know, really quickly, I wanted to say maybe a good idea too. Would I mean, listeners, if if you're interested, I mean. Alan and Brad are going to be working on their schedule for next year. So if there's a director that you really want them to discuss possibly and to take into consideration, maybe they'll put it in a big hat and uh, lift it up maybe and see if they want to discuss it. Consider that. Consider yeah, that, contacting an them. excellent suggestion, Jim. I, I would just add to that that if you do uh, like offer a suggestion, uh, a line or two as to why you would like why would like people to talk for three hours about this particular director, right? And um and hey, we can uh, that could even spark a, a conversation online on that on that very subject. Amen, amen. And uh, as far as myself, you can check out uh, a very great uh, interview I just did with Stephen Tobolowski speaking of Groundhog Day um, and sneakers and Mississippi Burning and Memento uh, yeah. Single White Female for Life oh yeah <laughs> of course I love Single White Female that's a great movie um, but he's uh, a he's, movie? yeah <laughs> sorry, <laughs> he's, sorry. Fa- he's fantastic <laughs> he's one of the best people you can talk with and uh, we got we got in some very Albert Brooks-esque uh, heavy philosophical discussions um, so check that out at VoicesVisions.net, my only solo podcast, which is Voices Visions. And you can also check out Popcorn Supper at PopcornSupper.com, where you can hear me and Patrick, formerly of the Directors Club, uh, just shooting the shit for an hour, and it's a lot of fun. And of course, visit NowPlayingNetwork.net for this podcast and a whole bunch more. We appreciate you coming back home. Anytime. Yes, uh, and thanks for you guys. Thanks, Jim, uh, uh, from my side for uh, for joining us on this uh, exploration on Albert Brooks. And uh, enough. and uh, th- right, as the Italians say, uh, uh, catch you later. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, bye.